welcome to Girls Gone Canon, The Book of Dust, Episode 8. We are reading La Belle Sauvage, chapters 21 through 22, and today we have our very special guest. But before then, I am one of your hosts, Eliana. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe. And yes, I am so excited to have our friend Warren the Hedge Knight over on Twitter, if you're active on there with us today. Warren, say hello, introduce yourself, tell us a bit about you, you know, let everyone know why you're here today. Why did we pick you? Why did we call you up and say we gotta have you? Just put him on the spot. He knows why. He knows why. No, I'm still wondering why, in fairness, Chloe. <laughs> I genuinely thought you guys were talking about Arya. I've been reading all my notes on Arya all week, and then I was oh no, it's Laura. Um... My name is Warren. I'm known as the Hedge Knight on Twitter. <laughs> I thought it would be cool to take a moniker of uh, Sir Duncan to talk, even how I'm so small. Um, and I'm thinking now possibly graduating to the Sworn Sword, maybe. It's been a little while I've been to Hedge Knight, so maybe, maybe I'll graduate and change myself to the Sworn Sword. Oh. Who knows? Um, I, I found a love for the, his Dark Materials novels um, alongside you guys. I leapt into them as you as you guys started covering them. Um, really loved the books. Um, obviously, the show as well, which is... is I think the guys behind the HDM show are really showing how to adapt a book series for TV, doing a great job. Um, and it's just, I suppose it's been a, a fun read through the books, the initial series, and now this one. Well, you know, Warren, you were my yeah. buddy when Eliana had not read this book yet. When we were still waiting for her to get up here, I was, I know you and I were messaging about this book a lot. You and our friend Lo as well from the Discord were kind of my my rocks during that time until Eliana got a little caught up. And now we can have you here and all of us can discuss the story, which I'm excited about. And I'm especially excited for some of the lore that I know you're going to bring to this episode because you are kind of our folklore master. Yeah, that's a big reason why, uh, you know, I thought that these would be perfect for you to come on since you're sort of some of my gateway into that folklore and legends that I'm less familiar with. And that's like these chapters are where that really I mean, obviously, they're there in some of the other parts of these stories. But I think that they come to the forefront much more obviously in these two chapters. That's really nice of you both to say so. I'm very privileged to <laughs> um, to say that, no, just in um, my headphones, expand my headphones out a little as my head grows. <laughs> well, before we jump into our episode today with you, Warren, we have a little bit of housekeeping up top. First things first, we will be releasing a Patreon special episode this month for His Dark Materials fans on patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon for people in the stranger tier and above. That's our $5 and above tier. Every month, there's a special episode for those patrons. Every other month, it's His Dark Materials. So we are on that right now. Next month, we'll have the Song of Ice and Fire episode. And Eliana, tell them what they're going to win with this episode. So this upcoming episode for this month, it is maybe you will win a bottle because it's, we're going to be covering the His Dark Materials television series bottle episode that was lost at sea. They threw that glass bottle away, <laughs> and who knows where it is now. Lost. The heart of the ocean. <laughs> the heart of the ocean. <laughs> it's been 84 years. <sighs> yes, I, I'm excited. We are doing a lot of research on the episode that 
was unfortunately lost due to COVID, but kind of redistributed through the season. And we're going to talk about some of the, the scenes that were lost, the actors involved. And I mean, they got five hours in. That That's your, your sneak peek preview. They got five hours in on this episode of Asriel's Big Day Out. So I'm excited to talk about that one and kind of piece together the scenes. Yeah. So we'll, we'll be trying to figure out what some of the ideas might have been behind that that unfortunately was lost due to the pandemic and i mean these don't really exist in the books it was something that was made for television purely but is of course inspired by the materials in the book sort of ideas of those moments that were intimated and what they could have been exploring yes we have some other things too on our patreon such as for example our discord which is available for patrons $10 and above, Thunder Tier and above. And once a month, we'll do our brunch slash happy hour where we all get on and maybe people will do presentations or maybe we'll play some fun games. Depends on the month. But April's Discord brunch slash happy hour has already passed. So we will be announcing the one for me soon. Yes, absolutely. And if you're listening to this as it releases, it is probably April 23rd, 2021. We will not have an episode next week. We will not have an episode for April 30th release. We push this one up for a week for uh, a quick week off. Moms go to spring break. <laughs> yes. Moms need spring break. Yep. Well, yep. there have been some serious April showers, right? That has led to this flood and we're sailing away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> April showers bring May flowers, and in May you will get more episodes. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck is wrong with you? I love you so much. Uh, That that needs to be the tagline for this whole episode. Thank you, Eliana. I really appreciate you as a human being some days. (sighs) Well, before we jump into chapter 21, The Enchanted Island, and chapter 22, Resin, we do need to remind you of our spoiler warning because sometimes we are not great at reminding you. So we're going to do better. We have vowed in 2021 to be better. So our here's really our spoiler late warning. New Year's resolution. <laughs> we're doing the best we can. <sighs> All right. Spoiler warning. Here's what we're going to talk about. The original trilogy, Northern Lights, Golden Compass, The Subtle Knife, The Amber Spyglass. We're going to talk about some of the outer works very lightly, like Lyra's Oxford, or of course, the recently released Serpentine, you name it, those outer novellas. And of course, this is kind of a reread of this book. We are going to reference the rest of the book. We are at chapters 21 to 22. We don't have a lot left. I think three chapters after this. So buckle up. Uh, we will talk about the rest of the book and some of some of the things going on there, but we will be saving a little bit of it for later. Will we hint at the secret Commonwealth? We will try not to make as many disgusting noises this episode, and we will save it for our discussion at the end of the episode. If you have not read the secret Commonwealth, headphones off because we will have a little space, a dusty space reserved to speak about it freely. Yes, and along with all of that, as you all know, these works have become much more expanded, right? Some of you might have come here because you heard about, again, the series from the show, and we will be discussing the show to an extent, and every now and then referencing then as we discuss elements within this book. But for the most part, as we've discussed, the show has been fairly faithful and especially much of the larger arcs that are in the original trilogy, so hopefully that's nothing 
too surprising to anyone. Yes. Well, we've landed at the Enchanted Island, Chapter 21. Malcolm and Alice have escaped with Lyra from the, the other priory, the bad priory, and he fills her in. The priest had wanted to take Lyra, but the nuns protected her. It seemed purposeful, and they start to speculate about what they wanted with Lyra. Malcolm worries that they wanted something worse with Lyra, and Alice wishes they could go rescue the other children. Malcolm's disappointed for giving away too much info with the Boatwright crew and Andrew in the first place, but Alice reminds him they didn't really have a choice, and she comforts him. Is it just me, or did the rescue of Lyra seem too easy? It did seem a little fast. Like, it, it was all wrapped up fairly quickly within one chapter, and the pace at which everything happens, like, within this portion of the book, it's a lot of, like, bam, bam, bam. We're at, like, all these different places, like, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And and that time to me does feel a little jumbled, but I do like these two chapters, so. Yeah, and yeah. I don't know, I also think it's purposeful, right? Because mm. Malcolm went in expecting a huge amount of trouble, but when he went to look for Lyra, the nun actually hid her. So, like, the nun really kind of put a fork in that plan and was like, oh, wait, it's not that hard to find Lyra because she's just in the one next door and she's not being taken away after all? Question mark. Oh, no. And I think it's a reveal thing, right? Because I think he wants it to feel easy in the face of Gerard Bonvie coming back in this chapter. Uh, at the end of the next chapter, you know, it kind of, they're like, oh, no, he's dead. How do I grapple with being a murderer? But all of a sudden, our heroes are no longer unsafe. You know, it's uh, the element of surprise coming back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Does, doesn't it? Well, Malcolm is nearing exhaustion, so they land on a wooded hilltop. It's a small island lit by the moon. Its air is different, warm, and fragrant. They steer into the beach, landing, and Malcolm immediately falls asleep. Ah, so now it's a book about Malcolm falling asleep. Uh, when he <laughs> Lyra's also asleep a lot in this book too, but it's like less significant because she's a baby, and that's just hopefully what they do. When Malcolm wakes, he feels like he's in a different season because there are sparkling leaves and blossoms, and none of it makes any sense. Not in the middle of this flood. So he shields his face from the brilliance of the light. His aura, that spangled ring, begins to twist out of his eye, and he greets it like an old friend, watching the spangle drift until he can shake it away and see what's happening amidst the birdsong of sparrows and blackbirds and larks. And I, again, I love these chapters. I love this island. Um, I think these two chapters are the most interesting part of the flood sequence to me, and I think are some of my favorite parts of this book. It shows how each of these islands really do feel like they are really different places, right? It, it feels like Malcolm's sailing through an archipelago as opposed to navigating like the flood in his town. And this sort of way that the islands kind of, or maybe they're technically mounds, right? But that become islands in the flood, that transformation uh, makes sense in places like for the le legends and folklore in Britain mm. and in Wales, where fairylands are actually thought of to probably be on islands, right? They're thought of as separate countries far from people's eye to see and we encounter at least two of those in these like sequences that we're going to cover today and also i like how pullman plays on the reader's sensibilities by warning like oh things are kind of weird here right because we're all conditioned enough to be like wary of anything that looks and smells too sweet we're just like oh 
that's probably a trap if it's too good to be true. So we'll see that unfold here. And regarding fairies, which we'll probably discuss a lot more this episode, Robert Kirk seems to think that for some reason men are more inclined to have the second sight because women just like don't have the disposition for it. I'm just like, okay. <laughs> Interesting. So I don't know, like just because yeah. it's the spangled ring, but like Alice can see all this shit, so whatever. Interesting. Huh? Yeah. It's an interesting take, Robert Kirk. I'll see you in hell. Uh, I, I love this. I do love the magic. It, it's a very magical change of scenery. Definitely puts you on edge of what's going on, and especially because as soon as they land, he falls asleep. Uh, what what kind of fairy tale doesn't start with, you know, oh, the people of the kingdom are put to sleep magically. So very interesting to bring this whole fairy tale around. And as Malcolm finally comes to from his little quick magic nap, he sees Alice talking to a woman about babies, and he smells something warm like toast or coffee. He also hears Lyra gurgling nonsense, but then he thinks maybe it's water lapping and not Lyra. And I almost didn't catch this, but I wonder if he hears the sound of the waterfall that they go down later. Oh, yeah. I didn't consider it, but that would connect these two places, right? Because we are going to talk about how this feels like a separate world. Uh so it makes me think that these two places are part of these this gap in another world. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting also thinking about them as different worlds. But yes, that could be the waterfall just as a warning out of sight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Alice calls for Richard to come get coffee as he wakes and informs Richard that Ellie, Lyra, is fine, and Richard, Malcolm, has Dick. been asleep for hours. <laughs> Dick. Ugh. How dare you? Leave Dick Orchard out of this. They landed at this woman's pace, her home, and Malcolm fell asleep in La Belle Sauvage. Like, straight up, he did not leave the boat. They crash land, and he just sleeps. Uh, he exits groggily and follows Sandra up the slope where Ellie and Pan are laying in the grass, surrounded by blue butterflies hovering prettily. Malcolm thinks one must be the woman's demon and surveys her. Golden hair, light green dress, pretty, must be in her 20s. This was the funny, I, I almost peed myself laughing at this line, because obviously we know from our, our instincts that the fairy queen is probably not in her 20s, right? She's like a bajillion years old. But it's so funny because it's like when you, kids are young and they guess your age and you know, you could be like in your mid twenties or in your thirties or forties, and they'll be like, "Oh, you're probably sixty three, huh?" Like they have no, no idea about time or what time means. Or they say you're fifteen when you're sixty as well, which is bless them, kind of nice. <laughs> That's the favorite kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's like this fairy's in her twenties. Damn. <laughs> Actually, when you see that, it's kind of reminiscent of the witches, right? Mm hmm. But they feel, yeah. but they feel old. Whereas this woman feels more youthful. Wow. It, not not youthful. Like just the way that she carries herself has a lot less gravitas and more mischief, mischievous than the witches. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're very serious. Those witches. Yeah, very life and death with them, and for her, it, it's very uh, well trickery, as we're going to get into, right? Mm -hmm. Interesting that um, I was reading the internet this week. It's this really cool thing. My nephews <laughs> told me about. Oh. Um, all the kids apparently are on. Yeah, I like to read it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and I found this. Um, the fairies are supernatural beings. They can be best described by the Greek word daemon. Hmm. That's spelled D-A-I-M-O-N, which means spirit. They're not divinity, god or goddess, in the usual sense of the word. Yet they're not mere mortal either. 
so often it's easier to classify them as minor divinity. I find I find the use of the Greek word daemon interesting in the context of this series where demons, D-A-E-M-O-N-S, are so prominent representing another worldly side to a person as their soul. I'm really excited to talk more about this kind of mythos with you this episode, and Eliana brought up a really interesting point about how this fairy seems related to the witches. Uh, you know, fairies are actually sometimes spoken of, depending on which angle you're hearing it from, but like in the Leviathan by Hobbes, or witches familiar in fairy in early modern England, they're spoken of in similar manner to witches, and in the late 16th century, most Christianity had demonized pretty much any sort of magic, and they kind of flatlined fairies, demons, witches, and superstition and illusion all as one. So just consolidated it categorically, as well as recognizing different euphemisms as the devil. So like Robin Goodfellow was, they called him the devil. Uh, so I, I find it really interesting in these stories, like, for example, Hobbes called fairies servants of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And Emma Wilby says that witch trials even featured the fairy queen and Satan at certain points. So in that whole aspect of demons and daemon, I also think there's so much folkloric intention here with familiars, right? For witches and fairies. Fairies also are seen to have familiars, which is kind of what we see with her blue butterflies here with this fairy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, especially because for them, you can't really tell. That's interesting. I think that might be a big part of it too, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, because Christianity in the late 16th century damning these people as like, you know, different and othered and kind of one magic and ruining their entire world and, you know, trying to force them to change and demolish their land and demolish their culture. uh, I think that's a big point too of like possibly uh, he's making here. I don't know. Maybe it's a point he's making in that like the fairies, the witches, all of them are kind of run out of living here. Yeah, it really feels that way, yeah. Absolutely. She was kneeling on the grass in front of Lyra, tickling her or letting the petals of some sort of blossom fall over her face or leaning down to let the child play with a long necklace she wore. But Lyra never managed to grasp it. Her hands went right through it as if it wasn't there. Mm. Alice introduces him as Richard and the woman offers him more coffee. She gets that coffee from a copper pot that hung over a fire that crackled in a ring of stones. I almost missed this one, but there you have it. It's a fairy ring of stones. Mm. I did a little research into this as well. A a fairy roth is a ring in the shape of a mound, most commonly found in grassy, hilly areas. Archaeologists, boring, say these mounds (laughs) are remnants of ancient buildings, but locals say the mounds were built by fairies. I found a Facebook group called Save Irish Fairy Force, Mm. a heritage conservation community. They've over 26,000 followers dedicated to raising awareness and protecting these monuments. Huh. Did you join? Uh, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> so are you, but so I know some gonna, people who are members. You're not going to help save the Irish fairy forts? <laughs> Interesting, Warren. Yeah. That will be remembered. Oh, yeah, that That's going to be remembered. It's, okay. remembered. It's, it's, it's more like that it's a Facebook thing, really, than a fairy fort thing, uh, if you know listen, what I mean. Do you think that the fairy community isn't going to listen to this, Warren? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. You back him into a corner, girls. <laughs> well, this is your chance to step up for the fairy forts. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's 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 great what you brought up about like that the ring and it's also in the shape of a mound, right? Because I mean, this island, maybe if you're thinking in a, in a logical sense, right? Granted, it's probably just magical, but like also 
this island is theoretically probably the top of a mound or a hill. Yeah, and there's mm-hmm. even something... What did I read? There's something about... So, the copper pot that has the coffee that's being cooked in this ring, if a human okay. steps into the fairy ring, you'll be compelled to join the fairies in their wild dancing, which would occur like for just a few minutes, Yep, and that would last for seven years or more sometimes. So, like, it, it's basically... The human can only be rescued by someone outside of the ring who can grab hold of his or her coattails. So it's interesting that he does drink the coffee, right, from the fairy ring. The fairy ring had the coffee within it. I find that particularly interesting, just offbeat a touch. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the child, childish game called Ring a Ring a Rosie. Oh, yes. yes. Which would be someone in the middle and everyone kind of running around singing Ring a Ring a Rosie. That just it rang with me as Chloe was talking and it kind of feels like it fits mm, yeah interesting especially uh ring around the roses yeah no no secret commonwealth spoilers check out the discussion but interesting <laughs> roses of course mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. gotcha what do you got eliana well uh i've got i've got this fairy lady right she's pretty she's kind and gentle <laughs> And that makes Mel- Malcolm feels a little uneasy around her. He asks if she lives here, and she responds, only when it suits her, not all the time. And he tells her he lives in Oxford, and notes that she is listening intently, though not to his words. The woman asks what they're doing with the baby, Ellie, and they explain that they're returning her to her father in London, which the woman says, that's a pretty long way. And speaking again of those mounds and... and suddenly this space, right, where the supernatural are coming forward. It feels like fairies are sometimes described as being subterranean folk, meaning which implies mm. that they live underground, but they yeah. aren't necessarily. So it feels like has the water just sort of pushed all the subterranean folk above ground? Mm-hmm. Besides, you know, creating that's, this, like, mm-hmm. strange flood liminal space. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. I think that actually is a great point because they are in hiding. That's the other thing. It's the secret commonwealth, right? Like, no one knows about it. This is a new thing. It's an old new, a new old thing. No. Yep. It's a new thing for these people to see in their lifetime, though, during this natural disaster, which makes you wonder during the previous floods, for example, like the, the, or the next floods, is that also when some of the secret commonwealth came to surface? Mm. Yeah, perhaps. Well, this lady's pretty strange. She's just taken this baby and she's stroking Lyra's hair all the while and Panda's <laughs> turned into a butterfly, playing with the other butterflies, struggling to keep up without flying too far from Lyra. But then he does, it hurts, he falls onto the grass, but then turns into a mouse and runs over to cling to Lyra's neck. The woman offers them to rest as long as they like, and Alice just comes comes back from some breakfast buffet somewhere with a plate and fried <laughs> eggs, and Malcolm eats quickly while the woman picks Lyra up, holding her high in the air and laughing. Uh-oh. There are some perils here of eating fairy food, and it is commented on later. It's interesting because I don't think it's come back to yet, but partaking in fairy food is kind of a big deal. And the fairy world there's two differences there's two distinctions in the fairy world if you eat their food in the fairy world it's usually perilous like can kill you if you eat their food in the human world refusing their food 
So like literally saying, no, I don't want food from you if a fairy offers it to you can be perilous because then they incur their wrath uh, and they're insulted. So it's a really interesting part of a lot of different fairy folklore with those two things in mind. And they accepted fairy food in the fairy world. To our knowledge, these characters aren't dead right now. Um, Or are they? We don't know. But it does remind me of this song, uh, a fairy ballad, if you will. The Ballad of Child Roland. And what you've not to do is this. Bite no bit and drink no drop, however hungry or thirsty you be. Drink a drop or bite a bit while in Elfland you be, and never will you see the Middle Earth again. Hmm. Interesting. It just feels like there's no winning, so you can't- so don't eat the food, but also you can't not eat the food. Yes. <laughs> so many promises that make you swear and swear. Can you eat the food but and it's perspective. It? Can you vomit it back It's perspective, up? I think, yeah. like, because what world are they in? Mm, That's true. my question. Whose world are they in? So you have to be paying attention to where you are. Mm-hmm. Which is hard when you just wander into a fairy world. Huh? <laughs> yeah, that's out, true. Check out them road signs. Yeah. <laughs> the road signs are the little mounds. Um, the little, <laughs> are there rings or are there not rings? You could identify mm. them better if you joined this Facebook group. Maybe buy yourself some goodwill, Warren, <laughs> if you help protect the fairy forts. Goodwill Perry? Oh. <laughs> Perry does run with fairy. Um, it does. <laughs> it's not a connection, you guys. <laughs> it's not a connection. I just not a connection. To act like it was. Might be a little weak. There are people oh. who would act like that were. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of the most famous touch points, right, that people have when they think of don't eat the food in a certain world, right, is of mm-hmm. course the myth of Persephone. And I just wanted to bring that up because you know Persephone eats the world in the underworld, and you're not supposed to do that. Because then you have to go back and go to the underworld. And that just is interesting, given what happens with, you know, Lyra's life, where she goes to the underworld. Yeah, I think we're definitely going to bring up the underworld a little more this episode, because it does feel, uh, especially as we get into resin, into chapter 22, there's some huge underworld vibes. This is, uh, just like in the Amber Spyglass, right, this is positioned pretty much the same position of the story, you know, 75% of the way through as we're getting kind of to the climaxes. And uh, I'm excited to see some more of these parallels as the book winds down, too. Pan turns into a pure white butterfly now, and he's dancing amidst the blue butterflies. Malcolm thinks, suppose her demon is the whole cloud of butterflies, not just one of them. That made him shiver. There's a strong sense of otherworldliness, a feeling of tearing in the hope, that kind of stuff, mm. to help Holman write this chapter. Um, I'm also wondering, is it possible that Diane as demons are testing, trying to see if Pan can separate from Lyra? Uh-huh. What do you think? That's an interesting mm. thought. Um, I definitely agree that it does feel reminiscent of Tirnanog, which is, you know, that, that other world that, where the Trois de Danon, uh, who are mythical, enormous... Very tall. Again, taller than Chloe. I'm going to make that joke every time. Um, race of people live. And I just want to make a reminder out there for fairy ladies especially. Tell your lovers that they won't be able to return home if you take them home to your mom and dad over in Ternanog because it's really discourteous when they come back in hundreds of years. And they're like, oh shit, everyone that I knew and love is dead? Dead. And that they can't get off their horse? Like, just rude. 
But what you were saying about the the demons testing if Pan and Lyra are able to separate is, I think, interesting in trying to see how magical they are. But it is also interesting that early on, the children just maybe this is just in general, right? That babies and children, even from an early age, kind of push that connection and that playfulness. Mm-hmm. And That's that that thought that Malcolm has of perhaps that causes him to shiver of perhaps all of these butterflies are are Diana's soul is also interesting because there's something interesting about like can the fairy's soul be split up into multiple parts or even perhaps the Ooh. idea that multiple souls can be one being and also i mean butterflies yeah. in many different cultures right in folklore in uh Japan but also for uh roman like ancient Roman people see the butterfly as representing the soul. So that would make mm-hmm. sense for him to be like, I don't know, maybe it's, it's like a bazillion souls. That's really interesting because of like transformation and souls and the idea of the secret commonwealth here of like these people having to live in secret and in hiding and hide their ways and magic from people like the magisterium who would probably utilize this magic as we've seen and as we see happen later for bad right um and there's even there's something very seductive right about the butterflies coaxing and trying to trying to get pan to separate almost it makes me wonder like there's a lot of uh, and we're going to talk about changelings obviously and a lot of other lore but uh, child sacrifice and sacrifice is a huge part of fairy folklore and it makes me even wonder if there's magic there uh if diana knows something more magical about dust and children you know? Hmm. Maybe. Who knows? Hmm. I, I'm just thinking of, like, child sacrifice, being young and beautiful forever. You know, the good stuff. That is the good stuff. Drinking children's <laughs> blood and looking great. Killing it. Collagen fillers everywhere. I don't like the taste of just blood. It's another Saturday afternoon in Fairyland. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone thinks it's beautiful and mystical, but... <laughs> you know. All that glitters right, is not gold. Dark side. It's the disco. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what an era. Well, Alice gives Malcolm some bread, and it is some of the softest bread that he has ever had, that's pointed out. And he asks the woman's name and how far they are from London. We've just been saying her name already, because we assume you've read this chapter. Her name is Diana, and she says that they are miles and miles away. And now, I don't know, the road's gone, so like we can't do it by that she says by water she's like meh but by air she says they're exactly halfway point between oxford and london malcolm's like wow amazing you don't really seem like someone who would own a gyrocopter in zeppelin and i'm like rude malcolm don't just judge by her looks whether or not she would have a cool steampunk vehicle but she also laughs at this tosses lyra up and asks like who needs such a thing and calls them very noisy and i'm just like oh my god lol malcolm like i mean anyway It's great because it's like, lol, Malcolm, she's implying she flies, motherfucker. (laughs) Herself. Yeah. Use the context clues. He is very earth-minded, yes. I love uh, to come back to this fairy bread, which sounds delicious. Like, nothing is better than a beautiful, fresh loaf of bread. But fairy bread is very significant. The fairies love to bake bread, and their bread is always the freshest and lasts the longest. Uh, There are many stories where fairy bread lasts, like, two whole weeks in comparison to the normal one week of bread and i think that's very interesting that again 
he ate fairy bread, uh, their pride and joy. And usually it's a it's in a lot of different stories as like the subject of like a human stealing fairy bread. But fairies also like to steal human bread for some reason. So even though they have this beautiful yeah. fluffy bread, sometimes they're like, I got to get my mouth on a loaf of wonder bread to know. Not sure. Uh, but very interesting. I thought that was interesting and fun for Pullman to play on those. And we do get this introduction to Dianya. I, I really like the kind of the elements and the etymology of naming her. It's very obvious that there are a few different influences on her name. So Titania is one, right? The queen of the fairies in A Midnight Summer's Dream from Shakespeare. She's married to King Oberon and sets the main act of the play in motion. She has a changeling child. King Oberon wants it for himself and later punishes her using a potion that makes her fall in love with the first creature she lays her eyes on when she wakes. Interesting. Uh, I wonder, that feels significant because later, Malcolm wakes up at this fairy island and has his little, or on the second, Malcolm wakes up on the second kind of fairy island and has that little sexual awakening with Alice, right? So maybe there's some magic going on here, or maybe he's had some potion. Maybe that's his problem. It would explain a lot. She's also named after Diana. Uh, the goddess of hunting, mythology, and later the moon and chastity. Her Greek equivalent is Artemis, right? So Diana is the Roman mythos, and Artemis is the Greek equivalent associated with fertility and nature. And in fertility, as a fertility deity, she's invoked by women to aid conception and delivery, which is really significantly shown with Diana and stealing Lyra, and the whole nipple suckage we're going to get into, for sure. And, of course, one of the biggest influences, which I think is really interesting, and I know Warren has a little bit to talk on later about, is Edmund Spencer's fairy queen, Floriana. Uh, Edmund Spencer's fairy queen has a passage that appears in this book that we'll talk about. But, interestingly, the fairy queen does not appear in the poem. There are several books in this poem, and she does not appear, which I think is such a boss move, first of all. Second of all, she's supposed to represent Elizabeth. Uh, it's allegorical, right? In his letter of the authors, he states that the entire poem is cloudily enwrapped in allegory, and that the aim of publishing this book was to fashion a gentleman or noble person in virtuous and gentle discipline. Uh, and there's definitely some political commentary. There's commentary on virtue with Arthurian knights in the mythical fairyland and on religion. It was written during Reformation, a time of big controversy, right? Politically, religiously. And after taking the throne following the death of half her of her half sister Mary, Elizabeth changes the official religion of the nation to Protestantism. So the whole plot of Book One is basically the persecution of Protestantism, uh, including that controversy of the Reform. And in Books One and Five, even Gloriana has godly English knights destroy Catholic continental power. So there's a lot politically happening, and it does memorialize, celebrate, and somewhat critique the Tudors, suggesting their lineage could be connected to King Arthur during it. Yeah, that's really interesting, um, all the ways that Diana's name is influenced and draws from all these different influences and, and of course, how it weaves in. You know, you're pointing out with Glor Gloriana some of that political aspect because in many ways, right, these stories are weaving the magical, uh, the supernatural, right, and how that yes. intersects with this political world. Yeah. Absolutely. Who would have thought that write, in order to write, you needed to read so much? <laughs> Sounds fake. Kind of ironic. Yeah, it does, Sounds it? fake. <laughs> Sounds like a lie. There's just not enough time, you know? There's so many books yeah. and I don't have enough time. 
I'll yeah, try who's going to take care of your cats if you're reading, Chloe? <laughs> I don't know. Malcolm is pretty confused about what she means if she travels by air without Zeppelin. And she calls him an earth-minded boy, which he doesn't understand. And she explains it as literal-minded. He asks, is that a bad thing? And she says it's fine if he wants to be a mechanic. <laughs> he takes that positively, but Alice watches frowning and narrow-eyed, narrow-eyed from afar. Yeah, the description of Malcolm as uh, earth-minded is interesting considering that Lyra is described by Macosta as witch oil and fire. So that sort of elemental descriptor yeah. is coming in. I also like that Alice is looking out for Malcolm. She's like, I don't know if I like yes. that she said that. <laughs> I, don't know she- I-, I do that really nice. appreciate that because she straight up is saying yeah. he's simple. You know, like she straight up is like, oh, you're. it's like bless your heart in the South. Yeah. You know, like she straight up is like... Bless your heart, Malcolm Polstead. You're just stupid. Uh, and Alice is like, hey, wait a second. I don't trust this woman. I do not trust her. You don't get to make fun of Malcolm. That's my job. You know? Yeah. It just goes right over his head, which kind of proves the point. <laughs> that he's know? very earth-minded. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He's happy with it. I mean, you know, and I think yeah. that it does go back to a lot of what we've seen of, you know, his future and him not really having anything planned for it that he was kind of thinking maybe he'd just work at the trout or become a mechanic or a shop guy like mr Taphouse, and uh he's content with that but as we see he gets roped into this magical world and that's not enough for him apparently huh i mean he kind of knows just as a kind of spin-off i think it's there's an element of maybe where malcolm comes from that he doesn't have that ambition beyond the kind of earth-minded as diania puts it Mm-hmm. careers that you know that that's the world that he inhabits absolutely now he's inhabiting a different world yeah new worlds are opening up to him exactly <laughs> and new new worlds await that was the tagline for the second season oh, it was. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah i mean i think malcolm knows a little he's like a little bit like that was that was strange that was kind of a dig but it's a part of his strength, right, that he chooses to take it rather as a compliment and see it as his own strength, mm-hmm. doesn't let it bog him down. And we can tell that he kind of knows it's an insult because at the end he's like, well, good fucking luck with that box day in you because you're not a mechanic. Bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is such a boss move. It's perfect. He knows. He does know. Yeah. And obviously we know that it's good that he is earth-minded and that he's mechanical like this because we also see that open up the acorn for him in the beginning of this yeah. story and yep. that acorn is like the little pandora's acorn you know uh mm-hmm. opening up all this craziness and unleashing it into the world as he gets roped into it and later with the box it's the same thing he gets it from that so you know it's not always bad diana it's not always bad are you suggesting by any chance chloe that the acorn is it's the acorn from which this great oak tree has grown oh you oh. know i might i i, I wasn't but you know, Warren, that's now that you say it, I wish I was. I wish I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, Malcolm checks the canoe because he's like, wow, I've had like 80 naps during this. And he goes over, checks it out. It's bobbing in the water. And finally, he decides that it's time to open the heavy canvas rucksack with the brass buckles. I didn't really realize it till now, but his waiting to open it until the right time kind of reminds me of Will with his letters from his dad. Oh, Will. Yeah, with his envelope of letters and how uh, it was his kind of like thing to protect in the journey for a little mm-hmm. bit until mm-hmm. he was ready to read them. And I see that as a parallel in some ways, obviously not quite as emotionally. 
And within the bag are a handful of items, including a sweater of navy blue wool, which he was pretty bummed because they could have used this, right, when they were cold. It smells like fuel oil and smoke leaf. He has five faded cardboard folders that are bent and torn, full of paper with difficult-to-read spidery writing on it and code and French arguments about mathematics, with a building plan attached, and the French writing accompanies it. Oh, there's Malcolm's airplane coming in handy. Yeah, yeah, sorting through it, absolutely. The last folder that he sorts through is in English, and it has an analysis of the Rusikov field by Bone V within it. Asta and Malcolm are like, yo, what? We knew he knew about it. They're triumphant, right? They're like, we knew he knew about the Rusikov field. He was just lying to us back at Lord Murder's house. They question whether he was an Englishman or a Frenchman, also because he has all these folders of French text that it looks like he wrote in, and I'm just saying... I'm redeemed. His name is French, Eliana. Uh, I, just... I knew you were on the redemption app, Chloe. <laughs> I just knew it. You just yep. need to tell Michael Sheen, the audiobook narrator, because it's Bonvildeen. I know. It's Bonvi. I refuse to pronounce it as, as Bonvi. It's just more funny for me to do it <laughs> as Bonville because Chloe hates it, therefore I like it. <laughs> it's so freeing. Just try it once. Um, <laughs> but also, like, could he not tell by his accent does he just have a very very good english accent no that was the thing like he just sounded like a normal englishman Mm. and it's interesting because this does kind of make them as they read it think he must have been a spy because of all the information he has so i think that's also part of it like maybe he was french but since he was a spy and he was doing a lot of english work or because he was working in english uh land and doing you know trying to get scientific jobs there to continue his crazy ass studies i don't know it just seems that he had to be uh able to pull it off yeah well you're not the only one feeling triumphant right now chloe because malcolm (laughs) malcolm's feeling pretty triumphant because he's like yes i knew that bonneville knew about the rizikov field was lying oh oh really malcolm was he lying but unfortunately, everything else in the rest of the folder kind of goes over his head with all the equations and words. So Malcolm's like, I'm just going to save this for later. There is a chunk of the text. I find this really interesting. This is from some of the papers. Since the discovery of the Rusikov field and the shocking but incontestable revelation, consciousness can no longer be regarded exclusively as a function of the human brain. The search for a particle associated with the field has been energetically pursued by a number of researchers and institutions without, so far, any indication of success. He goes on to say, In this paper, I propose a methodology. Dum, dum, dum. That's all we get, is that he proposes a methodology. We don't get to read the methodology, but I would like to know what that methodology is, because in episode 7, we were talking about maybe he knows a little bit too much about the suffering and anguish of children's souls. Hmm. That's really interesting, Chloe. Do you think he had Bonville had any involvement with or came into contact with Mrs. Coulter while conducting them studies? Is it confirmed why he went to prison? Might he have sexually assaulted or raped Mrs. Coulter? Does he truly believe Lyra is his child? These are some big questions, yeah. A lot of questions, yeah. These are big questions. I, as I've said before, I still think Marissa made some discoveries on her own, such as about the moment that dust, dust settles on people, coinciding with the time that a child's demon settles. But 
I mean, I don't know if he did assault, like, I don't know. Personally, I do think that he did assault Mrs. Coulter or attempted to or perhaps harassed her. I don't know that he really thinks Lyra is his child just based on the way that he sort of dances around and plays with Malcolm's, um, the answers that he gives Malcolm. But Mm -hmm. for me, I just find it really problematic to think that Marisa might have made that claim up. And that's why I think that it really happened, especially because of the way that she reacts when Malcolm brings up his name. It's it's almost, it's very uncomfortable, right? And I think that if she, if the story is saying that she just had made up this claim, right? And just furthering that narrative, um, that claim, I find that problematic in that it furthers the narrative that women just make up sexual assault claims against yeah. men. Especially because ultimately it doesn't harm, men often get away unscathed, right? Like look at our Supreme Court mm-hmm. justices here in mm-hmm. the United States. And what ultimately happens is that the women face a lot of backlash for coming forward. And we know that Marisa longs to be seen as exuding strength within the magisterium, longs to be seen as a, you know, just as competent as the men, just as powerful as them. And for her to come forward with something like that would obviously tarnish that image as well as the idea of that double edge, that double standard when it comes to purity. So if she were not assaulted or raped, I think that that's really harmful, especially because, I mean, this is a time when, like nowadays, when this book is coming out, uh, when a lot of women are finally finding the voice to discuss the abuse of power or harassment and sexual assault in spaces like academia and research. And also, for the sake of many things, I just think, you know, it, it makes that it's better for the story in all of these ways, right? That Marisa were subjected to this, though I think like the many other ways that assault, sexual assault is handled within these stories, I think that it shares that it isn't handled with as much deft as it could be. I do. So when I first read it, I didn't read it in that manner. Now on reread, I can see where those elements might be present, that it could have been that assault. Um, I don't, I don't know that I think it is solely because we don't have a time span, right? Like we don't know the timeline of when this trial really actually took place. It seems to have been in more recent-ish history, like in the last few years that it must have happened. But it's interesting that Marisa would have had then, if that is like if it was an assault or some sort of case that got taken, it interests me that she would have had then another case with Asriel uh, that came up, you know, with her husband and everything. Yeah. So I- I'm curious of how he would plan on having those plots separate and mean something and if we'll get any reveal as time goes forward. I'm guessing we'll have to get more of a reveal of what it means. But I do kind of err on the side now after rereading this of, I think that maybe they were even doing research together to come back to what you were hearkening to, Eliana, that I do think Marisa made many discoveries on her own, including the when dust settles on people. And I wonder if it wasn't something else, like not assault, but maybe got him locked up uh, for stealing the research or something. Like she was, I don't know what, but obviously we don't have an answer. Like this isn't something answered in the next book. I'm guessing going to be answered in the third book but i just wonder if they were research partners maybe he did try to assault her and maybe maybe he didn't yeah but and also that that's a great point i'm i didn't um i kind of forgot a little bit about how that was all framed earlier on assault doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily have to have meant sexual assault it could have just been like 
Yeah. Normal assault, <laughs> which, uh, yeah. you know, or, or it could have been like, as you said, any number of things. I mean, he seems like a very unprofessional man. Mm-hmm. And it's not like Pullman's track record for assaulting female characters in his Book it's of good. Dust series is good. Um, no spoilers for the future. I'm just saying like he, he has a track mm-hmm. record of maybe not making the best choices on that. So it wouldn't surprise me like if he was like, yeah, she was assaulted by him. Uh, not not surprising, right? Let's be real. What's another one? Add it to the pile, Pullman. <laughs> but uh, I just like, I don't know. I hope it's not is really my, my thought process about it. And I do think that it is intentionally misdirection for what we won't know. But I, I'm wondering if the research is involved because as we see, he intentionally trails off here in this passage and doesn't tell us what Bone V's mm-hmm. methodology was. Earlier, no one knows why Bone V was actually in jail. Every single person says something different. So I think it's intentional misdirection, and I think it's going to come to light that maybe, like, maybe in the future there is a character connected to Bone V that we'll talk about in the discussion, but maybe that character will reveal the truth. Like, no, that's not what happened. Don't you know what happened? It's this. Can I just chime in with something based on what you're saying there? I do wonder um, earlier in the story when we meet Bonville at the Trout, um, everyone seems to give him a wide berth, yet Malcolm describes him as being very friendly and pleasant. And I wonder it, what is the reason why people are giving him a wide berth. Are they aware of something to do with his past or something he might have done? Um, and I do think it's something that Pullman is alluding to. I'm not sure it's something that he will reveal. He has a habit of kind of doing this. He alludes to things and sticks with them while they serve his story. And then just once they've served their purpose, he, he tends to kind of leave them behind. Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm particularly thinking about the, the, the Egyptian storyline in Northern Compass, which until we get back to the Belle of Savage, he really doesn't revisit that in the original trilogy, which, which kind of feels unsatisfying to me. But that's a digression. Um, and I, I just kind of feel that um, there, there's, there is something going on there. Um, whether it's true or not, or the extent of it, we may find out in the third book. Um, and the exact truth of that is still couched because it, the individual, Chloe, the cl- clandestinically refers to is a, maybe his judgment might be a little bit Biased. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Apologies, digression over. That's my little no, puppin's worth. <laughs> that's fine. No, I, I think that's, honestly, I think that's a good point. I, I do think we're going to get some sort of reveal, though, because he intentionally yeah. trails off in this passage. So we have to come back to this passage and what the Ruskoff field, uh, I mean, what it means. I, I'm, I don't, maybe it'll be Lyra eventually someday that reads it. You know, it might not be. Malcolm that reads this it might not be Hannah Ralph as he intends that reads this and makes sense of it but I do think we have to come back to this Russikoff field essay in the last book of dust absolutely agree with regards to Russikoff theory absolutely yeah. but maybe some of the stuff that's gone around that he mightn't necessarily yeah flesh that out satisfactorily it wouldn't surprise me if he didn't let's put it that way but it wouldn't make <laughs> the books any less to me either yeah. Um, there's, there's still, I still thoroughly enjoyed him and what he is doing with him. But you can see in things like this, just some little gaps where you kind of go, oh, I wish. He doesn't I wish quite I knew go the for truth. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
He just dangles it and it's just, nah. Yeah. Well, Malcolm returns to these folders, and he's wondering if they're all in a code, and if Oakley Street or Hannah Ralph will understand it, and he tucks it away, coming to the very last thing in the rucksack bag, which is a box, wrapped in three layers, oilskin, leather, black velvet. It opens to a square wooden box that has no hinge or clasp that he can see, and it's as big as the palm of a man's hand, marked in exotic patterns. Asta jokes that, well, if you were a mechanic, you'd be able to figure it out. And he flicks her off the gunwale of La Belle Sauvage, and she turns into a butterfly before she hits the water, peering into the box and then helping Malcolm figure out how to open it. It works kind of like a puzzle. They press a panel sideways and a narrow panel comes up, and he works out the order and reveals a beautiful golden instrument lying on a bed of black velvet. It was the most beautiful thing Malcolm and his demon had ever seen. It was just as Dr. Ralph had described it to him, but finer than he could ever imagined. The 36 pictures around the dial were minute and clear. The three hands and the one needle were exquisitely shaped out of silver-gray metal, and a golden sunburst surrounded the center of the dial. Oh my god, I love the descriptive language here. You can really, you can, you can picture that alitheometer, the look of awe on Malcolm's face. His joy at discovering something new and beautiful. It's a cherished and beautiful description of the innocence of childhood that also kind of puts me in mind of John Travolta as Vincent Vega opening that briefcase in Pulp Fiction with the golden glimmer being all we see. Yeah, Yeah. It's so magical. Mm -hmm. And it almost takes on even more weight, right, in that, I mean, it's this beautiful, exquisite thing, and and if you look at the craftsmanship of it, it's something that a mechanic would appreciate, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a amazing point. It is with its little hands and its clockwork. Yeah. Well, Malcolm realizes that in talking about it, he's been whispering to Asta because he's just so bewitched by its beauty. They agree to just put it back and keep it safe for later. They speculate that Gerard has stolen this, and that this was the sixth missing alethiometer that Hannah had mentioned. And when Malcolm returns to the silent glade, he finds Lyra napping in the grass. So there she is, sleeping, wrapped in a sunshine-colored blanket. (laughs) I want a sunshine-colored blanket. Uh, Diania is braiding Alice's hair, weaving flowers in, and some of the butterflies rest on the sleeping pan, and some on the woman's shoulders and neck. A few try to settle on bed, but he's grumpy and growls at them, and they fly off. <laughs> Alice seems embarrassed, but also delighted, and Malcolm looks at her. Their bond had been strengthened since killing Bonneville, but he was so used to her sneering, frowning face. But so now she almost, like, looks pretty. They both feel very awkward, looking away from the other, and Mal closes his eyes to the murmurs of Diania to Alice, feeling sleepy and warm, and then wakes up suddenly, shaken by Alice, who whispers, They have to leave. Come quickly to the fire. He almost falls, he's dizzy, but they go to the fire, where the sunset has illuminated the glade, and in the middle, bare-breasted and shouldered, tits out, sits <laughs> Tyania, holding and feeding Lyra from her nipple. We are doing a lot of breastfeeding episodes a lot all of at once. episodes. Yeah, fuck. Finally we get the boobs of dust. <laughs> well, the boob, anyway. The boobs of dust. The boobs of, wait, why didn't but- we call this series that? Because then no one would listen to That's it. That's true. <laughs> but people already. But wait, didn't you it. didn't you have boobs last week too? Yeah. Yes, exactly. We are on a yeah. boob run right now. It's a boobs and and there was Eliana's wonderful analysis of 
Ariane's nipples oh, on her true. recent appearance with Radio Westeros too. Did I start? That's this? true. Did I set off this chain of events by unlocking <laughs> something in the universe? I see. I see a HBO contract in your future. <laughs> That's true. You do just throw. All you need is dragons. I've heard that they make people. They're just like just throwing boobs for no reason. Um, like actually though, like they'll have an executive, not executive, but someone on set representing the studio and be like, you should just put boobs in this scene. Um, I want to be a boob representative. <laughs> I mean, I'm we the, kind of are now. I'm like a sommelier of titties. Yeah. You know, veering off of the boob talk to talk about butterflies for a second. <laughs> uh, I wanted to bring up that it's interesting where the butterflies are settling on, that they're settling on the sleeping pan Right and on on Diana, and they're trying to settle on Ben, but that he's shirking them off, which kind of lets us know that Alice isn't really gonna completely fall for it. Like it's is it like the butterflies are sort of trying to claim and convert them, and also that none are on Malcolm. I think she just doesn't like Malcolm. She's like, I'm gonna take these two girls and like fuck you, Malcolm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's definitely like mm. Alice is not under the spell. Mm, yes, no. that's that's the that's the words. The woman looks up at them and gives them a smile that's so strange she might have been inhuman. Diana proudly declares she's giving the child good milk, and Lyra belches, continuing to suck in a way that Malcolm and Alice are like, wow, I've never seen her suck like that. Asta whispers to Malcolm, this woman is trying to steal Lyra. She's not good, and Ben agrees with her. Malcolm begins to protest and almost defend the woman, because of course Malcolm is under her spell, but Alice says Diana ain't a proper human, pointing to the butterflies all over Pan. Yes, so we have these lines. You know the fairies and stories. Well, they take human children. Well, not really, said Malcolm. Only in stories. But story after story... And songs, too. They all say that happens. They steal kids, and they're never seen again. It's true. Come away, human child, to the waters in the wild, with the fairies hand in hand. For the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. Mm. That's a little passage from a William Butler Yeats poem called The Stolen Child. Celtic legend often offers myths about fairies stealing a child and replacing it with a changeling. It feels very much like Pullman's exploring that concept here. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it does. And, you know, in normal times, it wouldn't be so uh, so weird, right? If this was just a random woman, it would be like, wow, you're a kidnapper. But it seems there's mystical stuff going on. Malcolm starts in with, well, normally I'd be worried. But Alice and Astar are like, Malcolm, everything's different since the flood. Things have changed. We live in a society. He tries to remember his fairy tales, and he's like, can we bargain with them? Do, do fairies keep promises? Is there something about names? They know Diana will try to steal Lyra when they go to sleep, but also, they can't pack up without Diana realizing they're trying to steal Lyra back, so they hatch a quick plan. Trade the alethiometer, make a deal. They return to Diana and tell her that they have to leave and take Ellie with them, but she won't let them. She says, she's mine. She's drunk my milk. She's going to stay with me because I want to and I have the power. Yes. So it's kind of interesting, right? Because Diana, as we can see, might be is like some sort of fairy queen-esque thing, right? But it's quite different from like the other like kinds of fairies, like the Scottish brownies or brunies, however you want to pronounce it. It's interesting that he's tr she's trying to steal Lyra by suckling her and giving Lyra her milk when usually like in when it comes to those kinds of fairies, like like 
brownies or brinis, uh, usually it's the fairies who like to be given milk. Like, you would, like, put out a little bowl of milk and stuff and be like, here, this is for you. Uh, but you don't say that because you can't see them in that moment. Um, but And they also tend to steal sometimes human women during childbirth to suckle fairies, not the other way around so much. Um, yeah. Uh, that a lot of that changeling and like trading for suckling fairies, I, I find that really interesting in these stories that I've been checking into so far. Yeah. Dianya plans to raise Lyra as one of her own people. Alice comments, Ellie isn't one of her people, but Dianya says, she drank my milk. You can't alter that. Alice asks what people she means, and she tells them the oldest people there are, the first inhabitants of Albion. She'd be a princess, one of them. It's curious, the reference to Britain as Albion. It's a very ancient name, and it, it just adds the mystique and otherworldly feel. Pullman hasn't really been subtle here. He's flying a lot of supernatural flags. He's having a, the time of his life right here, first of all. Like, the prose is out of control. He's out here like, look at your beautiful yep. marshmallow world you live in and the glory of it. I'm going to write about it. And then he is just tackling supernatural reference after supernatural reference and playing with all of these themes. And there's a theme that I think is really significant here, which is the idea of Albion as a parallel or an alternative identity for Britain. Uh in mythology, it is the oldest mythical, mystical counterpart. British medieval legend and myth, the isle now known as Britain, was named Albion after an exiled queen, Albina, who was the eldest of a family of sisters who had been exiled from their homeland. In some versions, it's Greece. Some versions of the story say Syria. Really interesting tales about these sisters and a lot of tragedy, but also a lot of good that happens. And, and I think geographically significant. It's Fascinating, very geographically significant, especially given the direction this trilogy is going to take in the next book. And hmm. given how he handles his maps, right? Like, the fact yeah. that we have Britain, Britain, uh, our weird spelled Britain for uh, this world, and uh, how different things lay over each other on the map and have changed, like Texas. Interesting. Yeah. Very. Well, Malcolm hatches an idea. He says, he offers to exchange treasure, a treasure fit for a queen. He says, you are a queen, right? And she, re she responds that she is, and so he pushes, asking if she's a fairy person. But she changes the subject, and she's like, where's the treasure? <laughs> Malcolm offers her a look at it, and Alice says she'll hold Ellie while she looks. But the fairy queen isn't that naive. She says, this must be a trick for two young people to have a treasure to look after to that she would really care about. Alice and Malcolm counter her and propose a trade. Okay. If you can explain to us why we are looking after Ellie, you can keep her and the treasure. Uh, at first, he's only going to give her one chance, but then she bargains and gets herself three chances. That first chance, she goes, she's your sister. Your parents have died. They left her to you to look after. Wrong. Second chance, you stole her from her crib and you're taking her to sell her in London. Also wrong. And then finally... She was in care of the nuns, and the flood came, and you and Sandra took her from her crib and put her in your boat, and you were swept away by the flood, and there was a man chasing you, and then you killed him. And then she was taken by the Sisters of Holy Obedience, and you rescued her and brought her here. 
Malcolm asks, he's like, wait a second, who rescued the child? And she's like, Richard and Sandra did, of course. And he's like, and who? Who's the child that they, they brought here? And she says, Ellie, of course. And Malcolm is like, got him. Because as he reveals, they are Malcolm, Alice, and Lyra, not Sandra, Richard, and Ellie. And the woman begins to wail terribly. She opens her arm. She drops Lyra, who Alice catches. And tears flood her eyes. She cries that they're taking her baby away. The way that she releases it here puts me in mind of the Banshee. Banshee is a female spirit in Irish folklore who heralds the death of a family member, usually by wailing or shrieking. In the stories I was told as a child, the Banshee would throw a comb at you, so it was always hmm. petrified walking in the dark. Of <laughs> Someone throwing a comb at me. Anyone I was going to say, I can imagine that. that. My mom I can imagine that, that being once. used by parents for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, Warren. This one sounds like you were you were getting played with by your parents. I mean, I don't know. My parents mess with me all the time, so I can't. They were mean. <laughs> <laughs> I can't deny that, Chloe. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's a it's a passage, a, a rite of passage. Yeah, yeah. There, there are a lot of different terms for the banshee, right? Like keening woman, uh, whose wail was so piercing it shatters glass. And in Scottish folklore, a similar creature is known as the little washerwoman or little washer at the ford who is seen as an omen washing bloodstained clothes or armor of those who are about to die. And it's also interesting that she was still wrong. Even if she had gotten their names right, she would have been wrong because he's not dead. Bone V isn't dead. They don't know that, obviously, and they couldn't use that to their advantage. But they didn't kill a man. Uh, And I I wonder if her magic and if anything would have happened had, had that been the problem. I find it interesting as that omen of the, the blood washing, the banshee at the river washing the, the bloodstained clothes or armor of those who are about to die does actually hearken Bone V, who will die at the end of this book, uh, or by the end of this book. So that kind of is a little bit of an omen, too. Yeah. I, I guess part of it is just to throw you off before the next chapter and we're like, oh shit, he's yeah. alive. And we can say that because yeah. we're going to cover the next chapter in like, I don't know, a few minutes. But... Part part of it is that, and I think there's a point in these chapters where Malcolm says he was inspired for this idea by Rumpelstiltskin, uh, mm-hmm. you know, saying that you need to know my name and this idea of bargaining with fairy folk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, of course, uh, you see that a lot in other fairy stories, right? That um, knowing someone's true name has power. So... It's also funny that he tied it back and got that idea from Rumpelstiltskin because Rumpelstiltskin was also trying to steal a baby. He's like, so you're going to give me your firstborn if I help you, right? And she's like, I guess. (laughs) Until she gets out of it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, there's something very fun in that Rumpelstiltskin set up for the three chances and that she wastes her first two chances, too. You know, that she, like, plays it real, like, oh, it's this. Nope, that's wrong. Oh, it's this. Nope, that's wrong. And then, oh, it must be this very exact, detailed version of everything you've done. Yeah, that's what so happens. She's looking for three chances, but she really only needs, Phil, she only needs the one. Yep, she fairy flexed. Yeah, she yeah. shouldn't have done that. That was hubris. Mean. Yeah, it was hubris. Yes. I know about it from the time I tried to cut my own hair, but it turned out fine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Malcolm tries to offer the wooden box to Diana as like a consolation prize. Like, sorry, I, I feel bad for taking Lyra, but here you can have this. Uh, and <laughs> she doesn't she even continues care about to it. Wail. He just like chucks yeah. it at her. He's like, I don't know. Here, take this box. 
fucking take this box. And it's Meeks, he's, you know, he responds, it's a treasure. And he tries to leave, and then Diana wails and goes for Alice. And Alice is, like, holding Lyra out of reach as Diana clings to her legs. And she's like, Malcolm couldn't understand. How could a man understand? You must. Didn't you like how you looked after I arranged your hair? I can make you so lovely. Every man wants you. I have that power. First of all, don't be a dick. Okay, Alice can do that on her own, Diana. Wow. Mm-hmm. She's really just mean. Like, you don't need to be out there like that, calling her out. It's cruel. Uh, self-esteem. Malcolm helplessly looks at Alice, knowing that she's a little self-conscious, and he watches her face contort, and finally her face settles, and it's settled on contempt. Alice calls Diana a liar and tells her to let go of her legs, leaving with Lyra and Malcolm. They look back one last time, watching the woman turn the box over and over and over in her hands. Alice asks what she's going to do when she opens it, and Malcolm says she never will. She's not a mechanic. There's a real strength and power to Alice in this book, I think, isn't there? And particularly yeah. in this chapter. It's just, it's a pity Pullman neglects her so much, especially in the next book. Um, there's also elements here of Man- Malcolm channeling his inner Loki, the, yeah. the tricksters. yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Using trickster power against some other tricksters, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And they settle into the boat. The rucksack is stowed under the thwart, and they propel La Belle Sauvage away from the island. This chapter is so heavy on mythology, and our first deep exposure to another world that Pullman is focusing on in this trilogy. I know a lot of mythology, especially Celtic mythology, has been hijacked or watered down or even lost. The Christian religions. Given Pullman's aversion to organized religion, is he emphasizing a point, do you think, in these chapters? About the simplicity or the type of life in pagan times or earthly beliefs? Hmm. Yeah, you know, Eliana mentioned earlier about how these people of the secret commonwealth are kind of being pushed to the top of the water, right? As they're mm-hmm. kind of being flooded out from their underground homes. And I think there's a lot to be said there, right? Because the people who believe in and are a part of or protect the secret commonwealth even seem to have a better understanding and faith in the elements. We see them able to navigate easily uh, through some of these more natural hurdles they come across, even in the main trilogy, right, with the Egyptians and the Egyptian party later on in this book. How most of the mythical we encounter, they, they seem not as affected, right? I think it feels so pointed in a way of life how those in the CCD and even in Oakley Street, right? Like, ex-Chancellor Nugent is a total dick, as we've realized. Yeah. Uh, it really shows yep. that Oakley Street isn't always any better than the CCD or the Magisterium. And I think there's a lot of that that Hannah grapples with during this, obviously, especially when they offered Malcolm up as kind of a a, a sacrifice slash, a, mm. you know, bait, basically, earlier And it feels like the CCD and Oakley Street both use and burn resources, right? Both physical resources and both people, uh, elemental resources in that wake. And it's kind of that parallel of sustainable lifestyle, it feels like, right? Like respecting the earth and the world and the people that we live in and what we owe to each other in the earth. Mm. Yeah, I can kind of get that as well. Um, I also want to talk about in Ireland and the old Celtic gods that Eliana mentioned earlier, the Tua de Danan. They were denigrated to the role of fairies, hmm. people living under the dune, mound, or fabled islands, or even within underwater domains. Similar denigration occurred with old deities in other surviving pockets of Celtic king- kingdoms such as Cornwall, Brittany, and the Isle of Man. Um, in his poem, The Fairy Queen, 
which we also spoke about earlier, Edmund Spencer emphasizes the importance of performing one's duty and accepting responsibility to complete the quest. That sounds a lot like Malcolm and Alice in this story, but also so many others in the original trilogy. What is it about Lyra that inspires this? Yeah, that loyalty-inspiring journey that, you know, Yorick Mm -hmm. and Will and all these characters go on definitely feels prominent in that same way. And, you know, talking about what you were saying with some of that lore and the people that are kind of forced out, like Aliana had said, uh, it's interesting when you consider the kind of the degrading of how people that are marginalized, like the Roma, for example, and how they, you know, when you speak of the fairies, how these people were made to be called the fairies and live underground. Uh, and it makes me think of the Egyptians kind of in the way that they're treated in this story, especially in yeah. the elemental interactions they have. That's the closest thing to uh, the human secret commonwealth is probably these people. But when do myths and lore and legends get degraded by the government and by religion to, you know, basically become nothing. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that the Twadadan and were decided to become fairies later on, which is, again, very interesting. They're enormous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they are, aren't they? I think it's just kind of typical as well and, and highlighting things that Pullman talks about of, of the element of Christianity embracing these kind of pagan beliefs and, and indoctrinate, indoctrinating them into their own cultures and uh, the ones that didn't seem kind of casting them off as being evil and bad and of the devil and it's funny how like even a lot of the festivals and celebrations that we have now are really pagan in origin mm, yeah um, and based on all those old really old um, beliefs where, where people believed in many gods and many gods of the sea gods of the earth you know you know it, it's just fascinating how he's exploring that in such a subtle way. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And weaving it into the this world. Yeah. Sort of giving them life again, you know, through the stories. Yeah. yeah. It's lovely. It's charming as well. Preserving it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's preservation. Preserving a people. Yeah. Yep. Cultures and traditions. Well... Speaking of preserving things, mm-hmm. that brings us to chapter 22, <laughs> Resin. Uh, yes, Resin. We are jumping back into La Belle Sauvage. Well, not in a minute, though. In a minute, because first we need to go catch up with what some of our other tagonists, we'll call them, have been doing. Amidst all the destruction the flood brought, a few nuns in a small area by Oxford was totally small news. And the CCD in Oakley Street kind of had a hard time getting real information about it. But Oakley Street is lucky to have a slight advantage. Hannah Ralph, her lethiometer, and the boy and the girl in the canoe that are watching over baby Lyra Bellaclaw. While Oakley Street has Hannah, the CCD, though, has better resources. They have seven boats, including a power boat, compared to Oakley Street's three. As this chapter opens, I do find myself wondering, did Secret Commonwealth play a role in causing the flood? Or did the flood allow the secret commonwealth to access and be more part of the human world? Mm. It's speculated, I think, that the Egyptians uh, believe the secret commonwealth is involved. I could see that. It could be. Like, I wonder if it's like, you know, we're seeing that the flood creates this way of being like, it feels like it's thinned the world, right? Thinned the, the different 
gates between the two worlds, right? And this idea that it's not necessarily like the way it is in the north, right? But existing on this plane. And it does feel, I mean, maybe they did it because they're like, you know what? It would be fun if we had a flood and then had a giant party. <laughs> like, I mean, maybe they just do it every now and then. And they're like, let's just have a giant flood party. Or it's a way every to exploit and get resources back, you know, is the other idea. Uh, is mm-hmm. take back part of their earth during this time when they put humans at a disadvantage. I mean, I wouldn't want to call it like waging a war, but it is kind of like a little bit of chaos, a power vacuum, so to speak, that they can utilize and obviously navigate better than the government. Yeah, I don't know if it's war, because at the same time, it's kind yeah, of just like they're just doing it for, I don't know, shits and giggles. But also, I mean, it, it's not really shits and giggles in the end, and it is passive war, because they've been basically... I mean, the Magisterium and the CCD have been performing acts of war on people for ages if they were different or had magic. So yeah, I guess it actually is just a passive part of their war. Well, two Egyptian narrowboats in a boat uh, that is hired by Bud Schlesinger from Tilbury are amongst these. And the Egyptians, however, they have proven to be a valuable resource for Oakley Street. The CCD... Instead, their biggest resource is fear, right? They use fear to question people for information. And both sides of the battle set are out looking for La Belle Sauvage, but have been buffeted by the weather as well. So everything is just very confusing, and it's wet, and it's annoying. But this, again, doesn't feel like a normal flood, Lord Nugent begins to realize, because they lose sight of land at one point, and later on they see what might be a monstrous crocodile all the way up here. (laughs) And then one night they're like, I think I hear an orchestra playing, and then there are mysterious lights below the surface, too. I did a little digging into mythological creatures and deities represented by a crocodile, and that led me to an Egyptian deity called Sobek, or Sebek, depending on which part of Egypt you're from, I guess. According to Wikipedia, Sobek was an ancient Egyptian deity with a complex and fluid nature. Hmm. He's associated with the Nile crocodile, or the West African crocodile, and is represented as a crocodile, or a human with a crocodile head. Sobek serves as a protective deity with apotropic qualities, invoked particularly for protection against danger, ward off or turn away harm or huh. evil influences. I think that's so interesting because Malcolm keeps thinking about the Nile, right? Uh, uh. He's thought about it like three times in these two chapters because he did a lot of studying of the novel, of the novel, of the Nile in the novels he's borrowed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, and maybe, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's weird much. because you think of this as like, that's actually pretty terrifying. Like, I would be terrified <laughs> if that were behind me. But it's interesting to think of it as warding off or like as protecting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I I love this reveal, right? Because Lord Nugent's companions that are with him are Egyptian, and they use a phrase to describe this, uh, one that we have been talking about. It's a part of the secret commonwealth. We've talked a bit about Robert Kirk, who wrote the secret commonwealth of fairies and other lore. He wanted to argue that you could be a good Christian and also believe in other world elements that are pervasive in the community. He wanted to argue with his book and with these stories of all of these different fairies and people that had interactions with fairies, uh, kind of the humanity behind it and that we are all one peoples sharing these worlds or world. And I think that's so prominent here. It's interesting to have that look of Nugent being introduced to these other worlds, a very straight, 
strict government man who is very black and white, yes or no, A, B, you're mm-hmm. either helping or you're against. He doesn't see these gray areas or these complexities, and it's very obvious that this is his eye being opened here. You can almost picture Nugent on the boat and he's bowler hat with his <laughs> briefcase and his umbrella in, the, so in the flood. It's, it's, sorry, it amuses me. Yeah. They say no more when he asks them about the secret commonwealth and they move on. They go in search of La Belle Sauvage, which, speaking of, over at La Belle Sauvage with Malcolm, we're going to flip right back over because there's a quick switch and yeah. it's running smoothly down the water like a great river. Like Malcolm had read about the Amazon, the Nile, Mm. the volume carries them on without snag or stop. The sun goes down, Lyra sleeps, and Malcolm and Alice chat very quietly, realizing, surprisingly, they're, they're not hungry after all that adventure. They wonder if Lyra is now part fairy from the fairy milk and realize they ate fairy food as well, the eggs. They float across moonlit water and Alice asks how he knew to fool Diana. I'd like to just digress for a brief moment and mention just how beautifully this is written. The use of colour and geography in his in Pullman's descriptive prose creates an eerie sense of imminent danger, particularly in play as mm-hmm. they approach the waterfall. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to call out. Woven into all of this, right, is, is what we were discussing earlier of how Malcolm explains that he remembered the story of Rumpelstiltskin and was like, I guess names are important to fairies. And he says without Alice, though, insisting on the usage of the fake names, he'd never have been able to pull it off. It's interesting just because Lyra's name is, of course, of large large significance here, and especially in the original trilogy of His Dark Materials, hiding her true name shields her here, but later on in her life, in, in the original trilogy, Lyra does cast off her last name, especially as the legend of herself builds and she becomes Lyra Silver Tongue, a name that she kind of chose for herself uh, from the name that was given to her by Yorick Bernison, and she really adopts that. Uh, but there are other figures, other people like the witches and those who know about the prophecy who talk of Lyra having another name that's also described in some ways as her true name as well, Eve. That's so good. Mm. And I know you're not very far along in it, Eliana, but you now kind of understand that Doctor Who doesn't have a name. He's just the doctor. He has a name, but no one knows it, except some people know it, but no one knows it. And it's kind of that legend. It's the same thing. No one knows it, though. He's the doctor. And I love that lore of that name thing. And at first I was thinking that, oh, the fake names, like her Lizzie and this and that and the other. But I didn't even think about Eve. That's brilliant. Mm. Thank you. (sighs) So good. So good. Yeah, it's hidden in plain sight. Uh, but as excellent as fairy Always. eggs, unsure. I don't know. They sound delicious. <laughs> they honestly. Do. The soft bread. <sighs> I want to like lay on it. Is this where is this where Laura learned how to make omelets? Uh-huh. <laughs> this is where eggs. she got her love of eggs. Maybe it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wait, where did she? Does she get a love of boob? Who knows? Um. Okay. <laughs> After a moment of silence, Malcolm asks, are we murderers? Alice is like, okay, we don't actually know that he's dead, first of all. Thank you. That's what I've been saying. And they didn't intend to kill him. They were defending Lyra. Malcolm says they're at least thieves then because of stealing the rucksack. But Alice says there's no sense in leaving it there. The box saved them. She reiterates everything he did. It was to keep them safe. But he still feels bad. 
and Alice isn't really able to extend that same sympathy after what he did to Sister Katerina and what he did to her. She hadn't really told Malcolm about it, so now she tells him. Bone V had bought her fish and chips, taken her for a walk in the meadow in the dark. It was nighttime, wasn't it? Why did he want to go for a walk? Well, he... he wanted... Malcolm felt foolish. Oh, right. He had kissed her at the bridge, he had told her she was pretty. A tear glitters on her cheek, her voice is unsteady, and she tells Malcolm there ain't many boys that wanted to be like that with her, and that's all he did, just a kiss, but she felt so many things from it. She says she always dreamed that if it had happened, the other person's demon would be nice to her demon too, like in stories, but the hyena had been growling and biting and pissing and Bon V just wanted to keep going, so she said no, no more. Yeah, it should be like the monkey and Stelmaria, right? Oh, Stelmaria. I love the swoon. The monkey and the Stelmaria swoon. Yeah. Such good writing. Just grasping each other's fur. But. So sad to hear hear about Helen McCrory yesterday as well, talking about Stelmaria. That's true. Really sad. It is. She's quite young. Only 52. Yeah. She, of course, was the voice actress for Stelmaria in the current television series. Yeah. Fuck cancer. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. You got it, Chloe. Yep. Well, coming back to La Belle Sauvage, though, in this book, um, in regards to this characterization of Bonville, right, He, we'll see later in this chapter, he's gonna return. Congratulations, children, you have not killed him quite yet. <laughs> um, his leg is now injured, though mirroring how his demon's leg also became injured at the beginning of this book through his encounter with Fardricorum. But we're going to dwell a little bit on what's going on here with Bonneville and his name. And yes, yes, it is true. The rumors are true in French. Uh, Bonneville, and the way that it's spelled, would translate to good city or good town, which is if kind of fun to think of in the context of these little fairy stories that we're visiting, but also the way that Oxford might have been characterized for a bit at the beginning of the story. But dwelling on that pronunciation, right, of bon vie and what it means in French, it's also a bit of a pun. It's pronounced the same as bon vie, spelled differently as opposed to this last name spelling it would be spelled B-O-N-N-E-B-I-E, which means good life in French. And quite frankly, it seems like Bonville's life, sorry, for this moment, I will call him Bonvie. <laughs> Bonvie's <laughs> life has been anything but good, especially as he begins to descend. And his last name becomes really ironic, right? He's seducing Alice at first with these nice words and his charming looks, and Malcolm notes that he looks really nice to him, as far as he can tell, but as we see, he's kind of deranged, and Bonvie is the sort of Dorian Gray-like figure. Uh, Dorian Gray and his enchanted painting, right? Uh, Dorian Mm. Gray also (laughs) did not live a good life. And the hyena demon is taking on the role of that enchanted painting. But unlike Mr. Gray, Bonvi actually, unfortunately, has the curious painting around everywhere. He can't leave it locked up, like, in a closet. And so everyone can see that corruption upon his soul and be like, this is not hot. I love what you're saying there, Eliana. But I'd also like to note that the French word for bad is mal. Oh, that's is true. Pullman having a little giggle with that? Yes. Is that why he's such a bad... Never mind. A bad boy? <laughs> <laughs> a bad boy? Oh, God. <laughs> um, 
uh, ugh, wash your mouth out more and no. Sorry. Um, Eliana, what you're saying there with the painting is so interesting too because of how Bonvie's character. Thank you for saying it. It made me so happy. I really appreciate it. That's it. it. That's but the last time how- it's happening. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, yes, Miss Boss Lady, ma'am. Uh, I-, I find that interesting, especially with the connection between Bonvie and Marisa. Uh, I know that we've talked about it before, but the collectors, right? The mini novella that Pullman is going to re-release. He's going to re-release it in actual book form, but the collectors kind of revolves around a painting of a woman with a monkey. So I'm wondering if there's some Dorian Gray vibes in connecting that, too. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. I do love the Dorian Gray link, and it's very... When you say it, it's obvious. Yeah. We have the passage from Alice, who continues talking about... (sighs) kind of what she dealt with with Bonvi. I thought it was going to be the best thing, and in the end it was just scorn and hate. But I was so torn about it, Mal, because first of all, he was so gentle and so sweet to me. He said it twice that I was beautiful. No one ever said that to me, and I thought no one ever would. She mops her eyes up with a torn handkerchief and tells him when Diana had done her hair up, she thought maybe she was beautiful. Malcolm tells her she's pretty, and she thanks him. He tries to sound loyal, and Alice kind of gives a bitter laugh. It's it's a little bit disconcerting how Pullman writes Malcolm in this circumstance, as Alice reveals details of Bonville's attack. <laughs> uh, while he shows remarkable maturity as a confidant and in his ability to listen, but this is a team that Pullman consistently falls short on. Unfortunately, in the next book, it's there again, sadly. Yeah, yeah, it's it's concerning how women are used kind of as that plot device in this stance for those characters. Hmm. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I think here I can like it, it's weird. I can forgive it of Malcolm a little just because he's like has no idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like eleven. Yeah. And is like I have no idea what is being disclosed to me at this moment. But yeah, it, it is disconcerting. I do think that's part of it. I think we're supposed to, uh, he doesn't have that understanding, right? It's like how when Will kills the witch and she's all like, you don't understand, you've never been in love. It's kind of like that sentiment of, Malcolm, you'll never understand. You're an 11-year-old boy that somehow knows karate and how to spy. Yeah, but maybe one day when Malcolm's 15, which is harder for Will, right? You know, Will, you're never going to be over 100 years old. Like this witch. <laughs> Jesus Christ. No, when you're my age. Yeah. Yeah. Malcolm reveals his own fears to Alice, so he does kind of give a little bit, right? He he talks about the hyena pissing in the path of the garden and how he can empathize with what she experienced in that manner, or when Bonvie had visited the trout and all the patrons moved away from him and the hyena. But he had been so friendly. After all this time, he was just after Lyra. Alice mourns that Sister Katerina never stood a chance with him in the way, and they wonder if he wanted to kill Lyra or just kidnap her. They circle back to the alethiometer, which Malcolm explains to Alice. He wonders if Bonvie planned to use it as a bargaining chip, because it takes years of experience to read. He thinks Bonvie was probably a spy, mentioning the many papers in the rucksack that he plans to return to Hannah Ralph, if they get back, that is, which... He's confident now. He feels pretty confident they will get back. Yeah. So, I mean, eventually, right? They eventually will, as we know. There's a... 
things happen. Um, but I have a tinfoil. <laughs> I have a tinfoil of... All right, so earlier, I think, Warren, you were bringing up, did Bonneville want to kill Lyra or kidnap her? And I'm like, this kind of just makes me think that maybe he did just want to kidnap her. Because what if Bonneville knew about the prophecy or knew something about, like, the lithiometer, mm. someone who would be able to use it and read it, right? The witches know about this. And what if he wanted Lyra so that she could read the lithiometer for him as she grew older? I don't know necessarily mm. if he was playing the long, long game, but that's I think like yeah, that's she, like a long investment. You gotta get like her a, literate. I mean, again, takes years to understand, and then somehow she gets to eleven and she just knows it. You know, uh, I don't know. I also I think there's something in that that Lyra is the most, the biggest bargaining chip, right? Like yeah. the alethiometer is one thing, but if he knows about the prophecy. Mm. And he heard it from somewhere. That means other people know of the prophecy, as we know they've been trying to know it. So having that prophetic child, that's a bargaining chip. And the alethiometer. Yeah, that's like, that's that's the whole set. You collected them all and you can sell that together. Yeah, you better start putting hotels and houses on that. Really fuck it up, you know. (laughs) Pass, go. Enjoy your $200 for now. The thought that immediately comes to me when you say that, Eliana, is in... Going back to the Rubble Stilskin type stuff in the previous chapter, I've uh, now picturing Lyra in a tower with mm. Bonvia coming every day, read the alethiometer and then oh. locking the door and leaving her with bread and water. Oh, the that's like, yeah. Was, yeah. Spinning the golden straw versus spinning the golden alethiometer. It could be golden compassy locks, if you know what yeah. I mean, something like yeah. that. That is kind oh. of what I was thinking that he would do with her. I mean, again, it's a... it's. Kind of too long of a game. You got to get her at least a little bit literate, I think, in non-magical languages for, yeah. to some extent. Uh, so she kind of. But gets it is very Rapunzel on. as well, right? Yeah. Like it's not just. It's very Rapunzel as well. Uh, with that similar, yeah. let down your golden hair, let down your golden alethiometer. Or maybe there's an element of um to briefly talk about the other series you cover. Maybe there's an element of Bonvi being Littlefinger and Lyra being Sansa. Oh no! Interesting. I don't, I like, don't like that. I don't like that. I mean, it's this. not outside of the realm. Of it's distasteful. Distasteful. It's not wine. outside of the realm. Of I'm not selling myself here, am I? <laughs> it's not out. Yeah. Well, they chat about how time seems to be going really strangely here during the flood. Like they're between time, like in a dream. They're in fact though they're between worlds. Have they managed to cross worlds as we've ex- exploring the subtle knife, or is this different? Does this part of the Belle Sauvage herald or exacerbate things which we read in his dark materials, which actually occur afterwards? Yeah, it feels like they're in between worlds. I know we're going to talk more about this idea, but again, going back to that connection of as they enter this little other paradise that people don't see them in, definitely feels like they're in between realms. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Malcolm's someone, right? who can go between worlds um not maybe in the same literal sense that lyra and will do but we're seeing it here um as you Mm -hmm. said right have they crossed worlds between like worlds that coexist in the same space and malcolm does it by kind of going between hannah ralph's world right the academic world and then his own okay that's an interesting take yeah I mean, Lyra does it too, right, in the series where she mm-hmm. also traverses mm-hmm. between the different worlds of Jordan College and the people on the streets. Yeah. So. That's interesting. It ties in mm-hmm. with um, what you're saying. Does it exacerbate the things we read in his dark materials? And I think it does. Mm-hmm. Okay. Alice asks if this is real, and he confirms it is. It's as real as anything. 
but he says it seems bigger than he thought. He wants to tell her about the spangled ring in his eye, but he doesn't want to lose its meaning, so he mentions, we're getting closer to Asriel, and soon we can go home to our par- parents. But as soon as he says it, he gets choked up, daydreaming of their home and delicious food and loving faces. Had this been a few days ago, he wouldn't have cried in front of Alice, but now both of them just start sobbing on their separate sides of the boat. If they had been closer, Lyra would be between them, and he thinks they maybe would have embraced and wept against the waves together. They float on, finding no place to stop in the high water, no trees to grab, no land, no islands. They could have been on the Amazon, for all he knew, and he realizes, how are we going to find Asriel, even if we make it to London? It's a great question. London's very big. And everything's underwater. (coughs) Even Chelsea. Yeah. That's true. Beyond the hunger and exhaustion, Malcolm finds a new curtain in the water, and it seems that they're caught in it. Like a smaller river within a large one, he tries to paddle out, but then they're just taken even harder into the river. He tries to see where they're going, and Alice wakes up, asking what's happening. He explains the current, but he thinks that they're going in the right direction. That is... I was going to say that's never worked out well for me, but sometimes it does, to be honest. Um, (laughs) It's the darkest hour of night now. The moon and stars are shining on the water. Everything seems clear, until that they notice something dead ahead. Maybe it's an island, and they're heading to crash right into it. But as they get closer, they hear something else. A waterfall. I was looking at what a waterfall can symbolize. Um, you know, some of the things the might use a waterfall to symbolize. And uh, the image of a waterfall, personally, it always amazes me as a reader, listener, or viewer. It's a splendid natural phenomenon. It's an enjoyable sight for everyone's eyes. Waterfalls can symbolize the process of letting go of cleansing, and the continuous flow of energy and life. Mm. It's interesting that it also is kind of like a veil, right? Mm. Almost like a veil between worlds. That's also, as they pass through the waterfall and as they go through it, it it does, as it cascades down, seem like a veil between them. Absolutely. I kind of picture in a lot, you know, know, a lot of them movies with the waterfall coming down, someone sitting in a similar kind of scenario, as opposed to Malcolm and Alice kind of canoeing through the waterfall into a cave or on to the next phase of their journey. Kind of symbolic Coming in that sense, you know. Into yeah. a new world. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It does feel like maybe even that fairy island was almost like the nexus or like the, the waiting room, the lobby, before they moved into this new world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it almost feels like they go through several, which we won't get to Father Tam today, but it, it does feel like they're going through several worlds. Well, this is a roller coaster yeah. ride. Mm-hmm. It straight up feels like a water park ride. I'm very jealous. It kind of sounds fun. That's how long it's been since activities outside with people. Uh, they hang on tight, and Malcolm really regrets not steering harder earlier to get out of this. He's like, ooh, I really should have tried harder. He tries to paddle out again, but it's far too late, and the waterfall comes up out of the island deep within the earth. They continue toward the heavily vegetated island, and a sharp crash of branches and twigs takes them. He throws his arms up just in time, and they end up in a dark tunnel, water booming around them, and he yells, holding, telling Alice to hold tight to Lyra, and he hangs tight to the paddle and Bon V's rucksack. Alice cries out in fear, Malcolm is drenched, and as they head toward the steep waterfall, a happy burst of laughter comes from Lyra, who's pleased with herself and gleeful and gurgling. Malcolm's glad she's safe, but then he realizes Alice doesn't seem to be. 
He calls to her over the water, and suddenly the canoe shoots out of the dark cavern, bobbing into a gentle stream between green banks and glowing lanterns. Alice lies unconscious, Lyra in her arms, then beside her, and Malcolm moves the canoe to the left bank quickly, lifting Lyra out of Alice's arms and trying to resuscitate Alice. It seemed Alice had crashed into the gunwale, but no wound or blood was in sight. She eventually comes back too, struggling to sit up and asking where Lyra is. Lyra is, of course, fine in the grass, still giggling, had a blast, do it again. Can I go again? (laughs) (laughs) They go check on Lyra and see their surroundings, a great garden, immense lawns and flower beds, the grass growing green in the light of the lanterns. Or were they lanterns? It seemed to be large, glowing blossoms on all of the tree branches and so many trees. That light was everywhere. I love this. It's very intentionally dust imagery, too, Isn't it? right? Yeah, mm. it's the floating light. It's very much like the end of Amber's Spyglass when we see dust. Uh, it just reminds me of it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, another thing that's being hearkened to, though, here, and as we know, we're very much in these fairylands now, is the lanterns and glowing blossoms probably need no fire or anything to keep them working. We get the same sense, right? That you're like, oh yeah, that's magic. And environmentally friendly. Yeah, it is actually environmentally friendly. Uh, well, again, want- that sustainability. Mm. Yeah. If only we all had glowing blossoms. I think that is like a very significant call out, the sustainability there of like, the blossoms are actually lit. You know, this is, they don't need to create ambaric lighting here. Yeah. I mean, they just got they, magic. They still have magic. If anyone's wondering what to get Greta Thunberg for Christmas, here we go. Magic. <laughs> get her some magic. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> well, in Robert Kirk's The Secret Commonwealth, not Philip Pullman's, he describes some of those fairy lands and he talks about them, describes one of them as being like Rockland, spelled R-A-C-H-L-A-N-D. And I'm going to be real, I couldn't find anything. I tried to Google that and like it doesn't... Mm-mm. I might Mm-mm. have... It might just be the wrong spelling because... The spelling yeah. is different throughout these, and people actually, you know, if, if you ever want to make fun of people or something for their typos online or whatever, just remember that spelling wasn't really codified until much later on, not so formally. But anyways, uh, Kirk says, Like Rockland and other enchanted islands having for lights, continual lamps, and fires often seen without fuel to sustain them is how you can sort of identify these sort of fairy places. Wow. I love that. Yeah. I love that. The imagery is just great. I can just see it now, walking up a hill and finding an enchanted land. We do call those uh, fairy lights sometimes. Some people call it fairy lights when you have those, like, string lights for your, I don't know, home or garden or whatever. They sure do, those people. use that term for Christmas lights here, yeah? Yeah. You know, the lights you put in your Christmas tree and stuff, we call them fairy lights. I have far too many fairy lights in my home. (laughs) I just call them, I don't know, what do I call them? String lights? I think I mostly just call them lights. I'm not very, I'm very earth-minded like that. They also make, uh, not just the (laughs) string light version, but they also make some that are like the size of a little bigger than a marble maybe, or like a large marble size. Mm -hmm. And they're just floating little bokeh balls basically of light that are like total fairy lights too. And those are fun. You can float them and stuff. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because they're like battery operated and they're covered in plastic, so uh, you can just drop it in like a punch bowl, and you have beautiful fairy lights, like the fairy lights beneath that. the surface. I would <laughs> beneath the surface of the of the water, like Lord Nugent just saw, right? Mm. 
Yes. An orchestra. But that's a thing. Oh, I think that's what we're supposed to be taking away from this, you guys. Lord Nugent looked down and saw the beautiful enchanted fairy lights beneath the surface. Are Malcolm, Alice, and Lyra actually beneath the surface in this world? Absolutely, 100%. I think that's what we're supposed to be thinking about. Mm -hmm. Especially because they went down a waterfall. Yes. Yep. And how do you go down a waterfall? Down by going down a waterfall. <laughs> but I mean exactly it when there's a flood everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's my question. How? how? <laughs> magic. <laughs> yep. Otherworldly magic. Yeah. Mm. Well, these glorious lawns slope up to a terrace in a grand, brightly lit house where many guests and servants are moving about like a great ball or party is happening. Behind windows, they dance, they talk, wander around the gardens and terrace, waltzing, conversating. And then on the other bank, there's nothing but a thick fog. In fact, it covers anything beyond the edge of the water and swirls around, but never parts. Fog is intended to illustrate obscurity and indistinction. In the Bible, fog is an image that precedes a great revelation. Alternatively, big pause, dramatic pause, it can represent approaching death, Isolation, or drum roll, a transformation into the unreal. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely else? intentional. Definitely mm-hmm. intentional, right? Because it's hiding also like that real world. Uh, it, it's like, you know, at Disney World, for example, when you go, there's certain places in Disney World that have like, and in Universal or like theme parks that have fully immersive experiences. So you don't see anything else happening outside of the area you're in in the park so like you're at harry potter world you see harry potter world and you don't see unless you're at a certain angle you don't see other stuff so you feel like you're in it and i think that's kind of also happening here with perspective like it's blocking the path to reality right like they are not in the real world hmm yeah it's really yeah. been flying it- heavily yeah it feels like the fog is doing like almost everything that you're saying right it's obscuring things right but there's also great revelation that's going to happen in a bit mm-hmm. that has to do with death <laughs> and that transformation yeah. into the unreal. Yeah. It's all there. It's back. <laughs> well, before then. <laughs> they have these beautiful fountains. And I, I just, again, I wish we could see this. I would love to see this adapted, honestly. It would be a great movie. Uh, the glowing fountains are sitting there and they have water shooting out of them and trees are laden with golden pears and there's rainbow colored fish in the stream does this feel to anyone else like that well-known john lennon composition lucy in the sky with diamonds you know you said this and i'm like or like octopus's garden yeah or like strawberry fields or like you know what i'm starting to think these guys did a lot of acid born (laughs) i'm starting to feel like these guys took a lot of drugs in their heyday now that i examine the names and the contents of these songs maybe that's just me but (laughs) might be Uh, onto something chloe maybe they did i've got a hunch y'all i've got a hunch it's really beautiful and the golden pears stick out immediately to me right golden fruit greek mythology uh the pear tree was sacred to hera and there's definitely a lot of Hera floating around here for the Fairy Queen. She was goddess of marriage, childbirth, jealous and vengeful. But what sticks out most here to me is the golden pears deriving from the myth of Prometheus and fire. Uh, Prometheus was known for his wit, planned to trick the goddesses to go steal fire by throwing a golden pear to distract them with a message that said, 
for the most beautiful goddess of all. They, you know, start fighting each other because they're like, no, I'm the prettiest goddess. No, I'm the prettiest goddess because you know how women are, obviously, in mythology. You've heard of us. We're the worst. So he sneaks into Hephaestus's workshop, steals the fire, takes it to Earth, gives it to humans, and you might know what happens next. Zeus is pissed. He chains him up and he's like, your liver is going to be eaten by the eagles forever and ever. But eventually Zeus ends up freeing him because he makes a prophecy that predicts Zeus is going to get dethroned. To keep a reminder of the punishment, Zeus is like, you have to make a steel ring from the chains that once bound you and wear it forever. Because, you know, that's a punishment. So, I don't know, with the, the pear tree representing fertility and female form and immortality and Malcolm having his awakening in this chapter. But also Malcolm is kind of very Prometheus in this, right? He's uh, He's out there in his boat. They're out there stealing from shops to take care of Lyra. Uh, they're meeting all these people that have a different way of life from them. And it's very interesting to me, the idea of Prometheus stealing fire, and now we have Malcolm stealing the alethiometer. Yeah, stealing the alethiometer, and of course, even Lyra, right? Lyra, who has yeah. a bit of that fire in her, represents mm -hmm. knowledge, because the fire, besides, you know, being important in literal fire, mm -hmm. given to humanity, gives them the power to almost rival the gods, to know and have knowledge, and that's something that the main trilogy explores a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Malcolm is tending to that waterlogged canoe, He's drying their things out, and he's dizzy with all the strangeness. Everything survived. Nothing that couldn't be dried out was at least lost. I don't know how that's, like, great. I don't know why he's so <laughs> pleased about that. And he lays it all out while Alice and Ben play with Lyra and Pan. We have this line. Blackbird Ben was helping Pintalimon fly as high as he could, which was not quite high enough to reach the lowest branches of a light-bearing tree. I find this little nugget fascinating. Can demons be further from the people? From their people, the older they get. Mm. It's also lovely to see Alice's demon playing with an, an encouraging pan. Yeah, it's nice for Asta to get grubby mitts off pan for a second. I'm just yeah. kidding. Oh my god. <laughs> it's nice to give a little Ben action in the story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's an interesting concept that like, especially because as we age, we do grow yep. more separated from ourselves as we see in the future of this series and uh, as we see in characters like mrs coulter whether even before the confirmation of her severing in the tv show that was a uh, you could tell the way she and her demon interact has probably only increased that way over time so that's curious that's curious yeah they plan to go ask people in the house if they know where asriel lives since they all look like fancy lords and ladies who have some money and they're like oh maybe we'll find some food and change our very fragrant child we have with us, Lyra, who stinks. Malcolm has to hold her for a bit, so he takes her and he's chatting with her and joking with her, and it turns out it's going to take a lot longer than they think to get to the house. It's made clear because they take the path to the palace through gardens with trees of light, beds of roses and lilies and other flowers, a fountain with blue water, another that sparkles, a third that sprays not water but eau de cologne, and... Still, they're not much closer to the guests of the party. Tirnanog was an island paradise and a supernatural realm of everlasting youth, beauty, health, and abundance and joy. Various Irish mythical heroes visited Tirnanog after a voyage, or by invitation of one of its residents. It's reached, among many ways, by journeying through a mist or going underwater. The god that ruled Tirnanog was Man Mananon MacLear. 
Similar stories exist in other cultures such as Asgard, Avalon, and Elysium. Oh, Elysium too. Mm. Yeah, mm. I, I I didn't think about that. There's a lot in there with Elysium. There's mm. something about the path to the house too, uh, the labyrinth quality mm-hmm. going on there, right? That they can't get to the center. It feels enchanted. And in Greek mythology, labyrinth is an elaborate, confusing structure designed and built by Daedalus for King Minos of Crete at Knossos. It held a minotaur, and one year his son, King Minos's son, went to Athens to compete in the games and was killed. So then King Minos was like, all right, seven men, seven women every year now have to die. Otherwise, we're going to end up in dark days and have a plague. And that just is what it is. I've been told this by the gods and we're doing it. So people weren't into that, right? Like, no one was really into that. Everyone hated that. And in the third year of this, people were dying. And King Aegis's son, Theseus, you might know him. He's the one with the ship. He was all like, I'll slay it, father. We must stop the brutal sacrifices. So Theseus meets the king's daughter, Ariadne, and she gives him a thread, which he unravels as he goes into the labyrinth. It allows him to get in and out of the labyrinth safely. There's a bunch of bummer suicide tragedy stuff at the end, but we won't go into that. Uh, There's like a difference, though, between mazes and labyrinths, and I find this fascinating. Labyrinths have a continuous path which leads you to the center as long as you keep going forward. You'll get there eventually. Mazes have multiple paths which branch off and don't really necessarily lead to the center. You have to kind of figure it out. Uh, So this seems more like a labyrinth than a maze. And as we're about to discover, there is a minotaur in this labyrinth. Right? Hmm. Gerard Bonvie, who appears. Yes. Interesting thoughts for all of those. Um, I'm going to come back to Trinidad. I didn't know that you would go there by going underwater. I just assume people just, I don't know. I actually have no idea how people got there. Just that you get invited <laughs> and then like you, turns out oh, no one God. tells you any of the fucking terms. <laughs> and then you go back <laughs> yeah. and everyone you love is dead. <laughs> but um, yeah, and, and regarding the labyrinth, um, it is interesting. There's clearly something wonky going on, and and Gerard as the Minotaur. I also want to say, if you want to experience what this feels like for yourself, uh, go to the what is it? I forgot the name of that island. The something, the Lost Woods. Go to the Lost Woods over in Breath of the Wild. Oh, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Oh. It, that has a lot of this kind of mythology. Like, now I'm really curious. Play Whenever I play Zelda now, I'm going to think about it. Because that has a lot of this quality, too. Yeah. Huh. They're really into mazes, you know, in that series. And they are. And even the smoke, like with what Warren was saying about, or the fog. Mm-hmm. Having that fog kind of like a smoky path and closing them in kind of makes it more mm. of that maze labyrinth feeling, too. That there's no real escape except out the waterfall. And Father Tem, as we learn. Yeah, the mist. Yes. But going to risk being fired and say it's amazing. Oh, Sorry, Chloe. It is. You're <laughs> hired. Fired. You're promoted. Oh, God. <laughs> Jesus. Demoted. Send him to the mailroom. I'm just kidding. He can stay. He can stay. Alice points out that this path seems like a maze, and they decide to go their own straight path. They try that, but they end up going around in circles still. They get no closer. It's not real, and it's not normal, and they're very frustrated. People are coming down the path, though, so they plan to ask them, but it makes no matter because these beautiful young people that walk by completely ignore them. They look right through them. It's like they don't exist. They're just obstacles on the path. He throws a stone at one of the men in the group, but the guy takes no notice, and at this point, Lyra starts to cry. 
So they decide they'll make camp, take care of Lyra for a bit, and they head back to the canoe, which as they go to head back, it was like three steps away. It's like they didn't even move. Malcolm thinks it has to be magic because it makes no sense. They make a fire and they get clean water from a nearby fountain, filling up their water bottles as well. Several people pass them and the fire, but no one speaks to them. It, like them, seems to be invisible. More people pass, young lovers, old men and women, gray-haired statesmen figures, grandmotherly women in gowns, middle-aged people full of power, servers with wine and food. Malcolm even takes food from the trays as they pass, and they get to enjoy a smoked sandwich, a smoked salmon sandwich, and other snacks. Lyra doesn't like the salmon. She uh, spits the pieces out, and Malcolm laughs about it. More mythos links. Reminded me of the legend of Fionn Kuehl and the salmon of knowledge. Ah. You know, where Fionn is in care of a wise druid who is seeking the salmon of knowledge. And of course, as soon as Fionn turns up, he gets lucky and catches it. Leaving Fionn to cook it while he forages, he tells the boy, do not eat any of that salmon. Ominous. He returns to find <laughs> Fionn sucking a finger he is burnt on the salmon. And is bereft to realise that Fionn, not he, is now blessed with the gifts of knowledge and wisdom the salmon bestows. Apologies oh. for the digression. I just want to acknowledge the resonance in that. Yeah. I think that's great. I don't think cool. that's it, a digression at all. No, that's that's completely related. And there's something in that, right? Like, again, they just filled their waters up at this fountain. And these fountains obviously seem magical of mm-hmm. sorts, right? The blue water, the regular water, and then the cologne. Uh, I'm interested about that. We're going to talk about that in the discussion for sure, because I think it's very cool. relevant for the secret commonwealth. But... Are they just chugging magic potions in this book or what? Yeah. What's going to happen to these people? Yeah, they were just like, fuck it. We're just going to eat the fairy food, whatever. Like, they go out of their way now and they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll just eat it, whatever. I mean, um, they're both just looking at each other like, well, we had to eat. I mean, yeah. But also, <laughs> somebody had to eat it. You know, coming back to the salmon of knowledge uh, thing that, that Warren was discussing, I mean, it's interesting because he's trying to feed it to Lyra, right? And I think that it counts, right? Even if she spits the pieces out based on the fact oh, that it those... fucking counted for Fionn by just sucking his finger. And it feels like yeah. I mean, she's mm. not, she, she, she's the one who, like, basically, you know, her storyline is about the tree of knowledge. Yeah. yeah. She's the wise one. Wow. I can't believe the salmon did her in. Mm. <laughs> I would do me in. <laughs> I'm bewildered by who, who would feed, feed an infant salmon. I wonder that too. too. I also know? wonder that. I was like, what is he doing? Why is he trying to feed her like solid food? Malcolm Tolstead, karate artist, foodie, <laughs> spy. He, she's still like at the breastfeeding stage, right? Like she hasn't even moved on yeah. to like the fucking Gerber baby food shit. <laughs> it's maybe yeah. a little too solid. Yeah. Well, Alice goes to take care of her dirty diaper since Malcolm doesn't do that. And she returns frowning, <laughs> but empty-handed. They, they hadn't found any trash cans on their first walk, though. And she tells Malcolm that when she went to go look for a trash can, it appeared. It just nice. showed up. That's exciting. Holy shit. They cool the boiling water from the fire for Lyra's bottle, and they feed it to her amidst the glowing trees, listening to the birds. Asta flies up to be with them, but the birds seem to find them invisible as well. Malcolm asks if the birds seem to be young or old and comments, it seems like all the people here are are adults who can't see us. Alice tells Malcolm to feed Lyra, handing her over, and they watch their demons. 
Ben and Asta are lying as snakes, fooling around, messing around. They're trying to be longer than the other. That's, <laughs> Very that's funny. like hilarious. It's the cutest shit in the world. Mm. Pan joins in trying to be a snake as well. Do we think there's any similarities or ramifications between this scene and the one depicted in the Amber's boy glass? I was kind of looking back. There are a couple moments, right? I was trying to like see the exact language of how the people in the underworld are described as far as like their solidity. Lyra has a couple moments. Uh, Behind them came the endless column of ghosts. The tunnel was full of whispers as the foremost encouraged those behind as the brave urged on the faint-hearted as the old gave hope to the young. So a column of ghosts. When she sees Lee Scoresby, she makes him out in the faint, faint light. It's very hard to make him out, but she makes out his lean form. Uh, And she also talks about how their faces just consistently are faint and surrounded by mist. Uh, I think that's very interesting and similar, right? There there has to be something similar here to pull from that world of the underworld versus this. But as we're about to learn, I I do think there's something very interesting in the people's faces being people they know. And that element of the underworld, right? Like finding the people they know and the souls of the people you know. That element to me is very, very interesting. So like, is it alternate universe or is it alternate underworld? Mm. Well, I think Pullman, Pullman had to be thinking about um, that passage, that bit of the Amber Spyglass when he was writing this, it had to be present in his mind mm-hmm. um, for similarity, if not nothing else. Yeah, especially because in the beginning, they don't hear her, right? Mm-hmm. Or refuse to hear her. Mm. Yeah. Oh, so Malcolm maybe needs to just tell him. them stories. Maybe. Ah, tell them stories. Tell them stories, Malcolm. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say earlier that they were snakes because of being the serpents, but... Oh, that's even smarter. Fuck. I was going to be like, no, uh, what, know. about Thor Ragnarok? The snake story in Thor Ragnarok? Uh, I mean, my first thought was that scene in Disney's Hercules when the two little, <laughs> the two little like, what, what are they called? Um, Like... Pain and Panic, right? Hades' yes. little yeah. minions. Mm. And then they're like, we are worms! Or like, also there's a time they turn into snakes and little baby Hercules just like ties them <laughs> yeah. in knots. That's what I Amazing. thought of at first. But then next I thought of Be the Serpent. Uh, Be the Serpent. Yeah, no, I could see that too. That's great. Especially with the knowledge they just ate, as Warren mm. said. Yeah. And the tree of knowledge that they also mm. pass with the fruit. And of course, the relationship between the serpents and the Eve prophecy, and it, it all ties in. Yeah. Does. Thematically, these books are, you could say, very resonant. Mm-hmm. You could. You could say it. You could. If you're of a mind, you could say that. <laughs> of a certain mind. <laughs> well, Alice and Malcolm are of a certain mind. They're talking about their demons and how someday their demons are going to stop changing and settle. Alice wishes she knew when it would happen. And Malcolm wonders why they stop changing, and if they'll slow down or stop all at once. Alice says her mother always said, don't worry about it. It would just happen. She hopes Ben will settle as something poisonous, and Malcolm nods. You know, he's like, yeah, that, that's understandable, watching the people pass by them. <laughs> Some of the faces seem familiar that they see, as we mentioned, like people he'd seen in dreams. Friends from school, grown up, strange but different, like Eric. He even sees a man that looks like a young Mr. Taphouse. He almost jumps up to greet him. He asks Alice if she sees people she knows as well, and she says, yes, I do. I thought I was sleeping at first. Some of them are older and younger as well. 
Some were dead. She says she saw her grandmother, for instance, who's passed away. He asks if maybe they're dead, and she says, wow, I, I hope not. He wonders if this is the world Diania came from, but these people don't see, seem to see them, and Diania had seen them. They had been in their world, though, above the ground then, so here, maybe they're invisible to them. Hmm. It's interesting. Malcolm knows this is another world, then. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder when he figured that out. It's the earthliness in him, you know, it's that earth knowledge. Ah, oh, it actually might be. Feels different. It really might be, though. You know, this is something else, right? You were talking about, like, oh, who are these people? Why do they have faces that look like people they know? It's something else that seems similar to something that Robert Kirk describes in The Secret Commonwealth. He talks about how there are certain fairies that, like, for some people, there's just fairies that duplicate them and just look like them, living wandering around throughout the world but mostly can only be seen by those who have the second sight and sometimes uh one of the terms that he gives them are the doublemen which is a very i guess creative name but he not just call them doppelgangers no no i mean no he, he has all these other different names to describe this <laughs> uh this uh phenomenon such as uh reflex man co-man twin brother and even just companion and oftentimes these copies, right, these fairy, fairy duplicates would outlive the original. Yes. And they had different reasons for existing or not just existing. They just like did different things. I mean, their goals ranged from like guarding the original to sometimes just counterfeiting the original and their actions for, I don't know, funsies. Um, so perhaps all of them just come here, they congregate here, and they come to party here during times like this, right? Uh, because that's, mm -hmm. these sorts of, like, doublemen seem to be who this party is made up of. So you know how, in that, how he describes, uh, the changelings and the doublemen kind of thing, and how, like, sometimes it's the nursing and the children and the switcheroo, mm -hmm. and switching them to better nurse? It didn't really strike me till now, but with a lot of these differentiations of and rules of, like, you can't eat this in the fairy world, and you can't eat this from the fairies in the human world, and this, this, that. Does that remind you guys at all of Will and Lyra not being able to exist in the same world? Because of Lyra or Will would get sick in the other world for too long and die? Ooh, that's mm. interesting. It almost feels similar with this idea of the doppelgangers and the doublemen and, like, what's going on with the mythology and Lyra drinking the fairy milk and everything. Um, I didn't really think about it in that aspect, but the whole idea that they could only last maybe 10 more years in each other's world before dying. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, there's definitely something in that, all right. I don't know how it fits, but I think it's something. That's kind of what that double idea really made me think about. So mm -hmm. maybe Lyra's a fake, you know? Maybe fake she's Lyra. a doppelganger. Maybe they switched her out. What if they grabbed the wrong kid at the priory this whole time, and then the whole point of the story is actually that just like at the end of the day, prophecy's fake. <laughs> so, I mean, it could so it would kind of be like the life of Brian. Yeah, a Wait, little bit. I don't, actually. I don't know that. You don't know the life of Brian, Eliana? No, I don't. No, oh, it's um, it's Monty Python. It's oh. um, what if they? What if the three wise men went to the wrong? Manger, and they went to Brian instead of Jesus, so Brian was treated as if he was Jesus, but he yeah, wasn't. It's a good one. That I just like don't remember a lot for some reason. It's worth it was, a rewatch with like a whiskey some night. Yeah, it was illegal here until 
the late eighties, oh, really? maybe. Oh, you know, it was it was viewed wow. as um, um, what's the world for anti-religious? You know, it was sacrosanct, something Sacri- like that. Yeah, sacrilegious. So it was yeah. a rite of passage for us. Was kind of um, ditching school and going around to someone's house and watching the video of the life of Brian was like it was a big deal because it was. Oh, a that's video. rebellious. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you were a rebel doing oh, that. Oh, yeah, well, we had our moments, you know. We watched <laughs> the life of Brian when I was twelve. Wow. Yeah, hmm. that's nuts. That's my brother in law still. I didn't still, realize it was banned. Oh well, yeah. My brother in law makes a big point of watching it every Good Friday <laughs> because it was banned. <laughs> <laughs> you could say religiously. Religiously, oh. you could say that. Yeah. If you were a person of a certain mind, persuasion. Anywho, uh. that most assuredly is a digression, and I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are full of them. <laughs> Thank you. Malcolm and Alice have gotten pretty sleepy from all of this, uh, and they vouch they're going to be careful, and they're like, let's just take a little nap, you know, let's just take a quick nap, we'll be ready to go after that. Alice falls asleep, and Malcolm stares at Alice's face a little bit while she sleeps, Mm -hmm. knowing he shouldn't, but he's like, I kind of want to get to know her face, I'm curious. So we have this passage. The little frown that lived between her eyebrows had vanished. It was a softer face altogether. Her mouth was relaxed, her whole expression complex and subtle. There was a sort of kindness in it, and a sort of lazy enjoyment. Those were the words he found to describe it. A hint of mocking smile lay in the flesh around her eyes. Her lips, narrow, compressed while she was awake, were looser and fuller in sleep, and almost smiling like her sleeping eyes. Her skin, too, or or what did ladies call it, her complexion, was fine and silky, and in her cheeks was a faint flush as if she was hot or as if she was blushing at a dream. It was too close. He felt he was doing wrong. He sat up and looked away. This is definitely an intense passage that Malcolm is kind of creeping on Alice, and he even knows he's being a creep, so he stops and he tends to Lyra, and then he strokes Lyra's forehead for a moment, and he's like, maybe I should stroke Alice's cheeks. And he's like, no, 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 I shouldn't do that. Definitely shouldn't. So I'm glad he learned from that. Uh, He goes and he watches the water and he doesn't feel sleepy, but he keeps thinking about kissing Alice now. It's a thought that just keeps coming to his head and he decides to busy himself instead. Stick with me here now with this. Is this a test of Malcolm's innocence? Considering the notion of purgatory is to challenge a sinner with a virtue, that's the opposite. Could could the opposite be in case for Malcolm and Mm. that it's taking a virtue and challenging him with a sin? Mm-hmm. Um, what were the implications of this visit on Lyra and the Eve prophecy going forward? That's an interesting thought. I don't know. Like you said, is it a test of his virtue? But at the same time, the original trilogy tells us sinning is a good thing, right? Sin is great. It feels awesome. But don't do this, Malcolm. Don't do that. No, no, no. Maybe when she's awake, ask her if yeah. you can. Holy Jesus. You're 11. Jesus. All right. Mm. Yeah, it's a... And it is, like, part of it seems like part of his sexual awakening in the underworld, right? In that purgatory, like you're saying. Like, he's 11, and he wants to hump everything, and this is just dawning on him. Uh, And, I don't know, it's very purgatory-esque. It's very underworld-esque. I I don't know if either of you know the story of Tam Lin. Warren, you might. It's been adapted to many songs and stories. Yeah, Uh, Roddy McDowell has a film. Right, that's uh, on it, and there's prose and so many songs. Anais Mitchell actually did a duet with Jefferson Hammer on it, and it, it, it's a really good song. I linked it, so you're gonna have to check it out. But it's a Scottish 
fairy tradition, basically, that Tamlin collects maidens' virginities from the forest of Carterhoe and basically pulls them in while they pick flowers and being like, how dare you pick flowers in my forest? And usually they fall for it, right? It's not his forest, but usually they fall for it and they fuck him. One day, someone outsmarts him, a maiden named Janet, and she's like, my father owns this whole forest and has given it to me so I can pick flowers wherever I want. Unfortunately, she doesn't really outsmart him because she gets knocked up with his kid. And she doesn't want to get rid of it because she thinks it's an elven child. And in most versions, she ends up returning to the forest to have another encounter with Tamlin, where he reveals he's secretly a mortal who was captured by the Queen of Fairies, and he reveals an elaborate plan to save him from being sacrificed that night. So in that story, she and Tamlin win. She gets her knight, and they escape the Fairy Queen, and all is well, right? Uh, But there is a tax to pay. This is called the Tamed, the Tithe, the Seven-Year King, basically. And the Fae make us think that in some texts, they kind of assume that the Fae draw their power from nature. But there's a lot of lore that suggests something even darker with that underworld imagery, a more complicated explanation pinpointing the source to the underworld that the Fae strike a deal with the Lord of the Underworld or are in service and dominion to them. Uh, In order for them to have control of their world and dominion over their fairy world, they must make a sacrifice every seven years, usually in the form of a mortal sacrifice, someone given to the underworld, uh, and finding and kidnapping the most heroic and talented person the fairies can find. So it makes me wonder with all of this kind of imagery of innocence and experience that we know that he likes to play with here, Pullman, was Lyra the baby supposed to be a seven-year queen as a source of magic, maybe? In almost all these versions of Tamlin, the almost sacrifice takes place around Halloween, around Samhain. And it's interesting when you consider the implication of, like, later in the stories we hear about Jackie Lanterns in the Secret Commonwealth. And it just feels really significant, especially with Irish mythology, that 11th mm-hmm. century in Irish work, Samhain was tax time. People would need to deliver two-thirds of their income and children to the Fomorians, the giant kin, deformed by an ancient curse. So the Fae would ride at harvest time to collect their taxes in the underworld. As Malcolm is sitting here being weird and, you know, kind of like this feverish feeling coming over him of sitting here with these two ladies hanging out in this underworld land. And as things have changed, right, society has changed. Uh, it makes me feel like maybe they're being coaxed into this magic and being drawn into it for a reason. Yeah, there's definitely a lot in that. There are a couple of digressive type things I would like to point out based on what you're saying, particularly around Sewan, which is the um, the Gaelic name for the month of October, um, which Halloween falls at the end of, coincidentally. And also (laughs) it would be be the time of harvest. It's some in the beginning of the end of autumn, heading towards the beginning of winter, where harvest will be collected and gathered in. So a lot of the, lot of that would tie in, and um, traditionally what people would do around that time of the year would tie in with the story that you've got there. Mm-hmm. I'm particularly taking with the Halloween reference and um how it tied the, the the time of the year the the calendar type reference mm-hmm. and how it ties in and how um how Pullman really is exploring this. Mythology, I mean, so deeply in these two chapters. It's so different to, I mean, the preceding chapters that you covered last time um, are very, yeah. very much Malcolm in his earth world kind of thing. But this is mm. very, 
it, it's it's three very out there chapters, but they're absolutely amazing that the work that he's put into it and mm-hmm. the detail, the quality of the writing, it, it's really be- some beautiful stuff, even if there are some uncomfortable themes <laughs> that he's exploring yeah. and, and there's certainly he's ex- exposing some of his own weaknesses, but, but there, there's just, it, it's hard to overlook just how good some of this stuff is and how much work he's put into making it so good. So a little clap for Mr. Pullman, well done. Beautiful stuff. It does almost seem like this could be like a harvest feast. Yes. Hmm. In the underworld. That that's that's kind of also how it feels. Like maybe it's a harvest ballroom party. You With know, Neil it Young. feels like the bounty that comes at harvest time. Neil Young so playing bounty. Harvest Moon. Point of fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. It's interesting that they don't decide what if we just use Bonneville? <laughs> He's immortal. Ooh. He's right there. He's already in there. It's an easy sacrifice. It is. Mm-hmm. Leave Interesting. Get a job. No, different guy. <laughs> no more jobs. No more no. jobs. No more jobs for people. <laughs> no, and Malcolm definitely is not getting a job. He's unemployable. No. Not with me. <laughs> As we're thinking of like, well, what if we just didn't stay on this island, right? Malcolm realizes that there is an inch of water in La Belle Sauvage and that there's a crack in the hull. Asta helps examine it in cat form. They realize that they need canvas, glue, and a plank to fix it. Asta points out that they can use the rucksack's canvas to stem the gap, and that there's a tree or two with some large golden resin gashes that they can gather some resin from and use to glue it all up. And he thinks that, well, actually the resin's, like, enough to waterproof the whole thing um, and not use the canvas, but he's like, you know what, whatever. Better safe than sorry, because that's what Mr. Taphouse would do. Oh. I really like uh, that he thinks about Mr. Taphouse. You know, we don't know what the fuck is up with him right now. I hope he's at home chilling. But yeah. the whole, every single time he'd go into the Priory and he wasn't there, he'd be like, nope, not here, not here. I was getting worried. So I hope he's yeah, all right. right. I'm really starting to worry about that guy. But this is really bittersweet, right? Uh, he's doing something that Taphouse to be proud of, especially because he taught him these very earth-minded skills, right? Mm-hmm. That has survived him from the Fairy Queen. But also, he's using Bonvie's canvas to stem it, which kind of makes Bonvie a part of La Belle Sauvage, whether Malcolm wants him to be or not. Ooh. And later, as we see, this happens for another character in the journey that has to bear the scar of Bonvie in their life. So, I don't know, I think it's kind of a weird, bittersweet thing that you're inserting this evil, horrible person into your boat that you're going to have to kill. Uh, La Belle Sauvage is Malcolm's world, right? Besides karate and lyra and spying i guess so for bone v to be a shard stuck in their plot it's interesting it it's is. i guess a mishmash yeah yeah i like him um, not just how malcolm learns things but how he remembers where he learns them from and how that that means something to him so mr taphouse is really he's made his, his influence stays with malcolm and that's one of malcolm's really nice qualities it's a shame mm. what happens later <laughs> When he grows up. Yeah, he's such a nice boy at this day. He really is. He's got I some know. flaws here, but he's such a nice boy. Who doesn't? He is. He is a nice boy. And, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, uh, the thing about Bonneville being part of the legacy of La Belle Sauvage, it's interesting that he's part of it, but a lot of the boat's legacy as well, right, is Lord Asriel. So it's mm-hmm. those two. Yeah. Two men. That's an interesting name. Mm-hmm. conflict especially considering when we were talking earlier about marissa and their crossover and their potential influence on her yeah mm-hmm. maybe marissa especially is they're both similar 
You know, they're they're similar characters in what they want. It's just Bon V went off the deep end a lot sooner. Yep. Whereas Azrael just went off the deep end a lot heavier, ultimately. <laughs> Guy did oh, a lot of drugs. Yeah, he yeah, did. He did. No, he did. I mean, yeah. he just he didn't know just to stop. Literally oh went off the deep end. <laughs> literally <laughs> the deep end. What more in the saying? The deepest of ends. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> oh, God, <end>. fuck. <laughs> well, read the void. Regarding the void, yes. <laughs> well. Um, Malcolm begins to saw at the canvas with his knife and is surprised at just how resilient the canvas is. And Asta flies to his shoulder and tells him to be quick. Something feels off, but she can't quite put it into words. Malcolm finishes cutting the canvas and Asta turns into a hawk, getting to the tree first. Malcolm climbs up to get the resin and looks back at the gorgeous house and lawn again from the tree, thinking that next time... That he is going to come back here someday with happy companions and feel at ease with life and death. He peers the other way, across the river, and finally sees the other bank. Desolation. It was a wilderness of broken buildings, rubble, burnt houses, shanties, and puddles of filthy, toxic chemical waste where children with sores on their arms throw stones at a dog tied to a post. Reminds me a little bit of the scene in uh, Chittagatse. And then Malcolm cries out before he can help himself. And Asta does as well, because Bonneville is here on the terrace. Dun, dun, dun. dun. <laughs> I think it's interesting the way he, he uses the particular word terrace here. And um, the seven, seven levels of purgatory are also called terraces. And they ah. correspond with the seven deadly sins. That's pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. All of which Bonneville is probably guilty of. The punishments in each terrace aim to teach sinners and each in the terrace, the opposing virtue. Just found that interesting, the particular word. I think that's in, that's got to be intentional for sure. That's mm-hmm. a great catch. That's uh, this is definitely feels like hell. Like oh fuck, I thought we killed this guy, and that looking there. across the river and finally being able to see uh, out of the fog, and that's what exists beyond the fog. And that so is that another world, then. Or is that literally just down the street? Hmm. I kind of feel like I it's think another it's world. Another world. Yeah. yeah, it feels that way. Yeah. Um, oh. it's, it's it's also interesting how he Bonville can see them, but no one else can, and he directs everyone. Yeah, and it makes it kind of makes me think about the whole third eye being open kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, your third eye being open, being able to see other worlds now that they have entered other worlds. Kind of like how Lyra, you know, in Entering Other Worlds in the Subtle Knife, you have Boreal, for example, who is kind of a great villain to bring up against uh, Bon V in this, that he also is, you know, going out there trying to get Lyra, trying to covet Lyra and covet the Alethiometer, and he sees other worlds, and he's been in other worlds, so he's kind of a, a villain that is her match, right? Like, he is kind of on her level, on her match. And now that Malcolm has seen other worlds... It's like Bon V and him share that weird nemesis arch rival bond. Mm. It's interesting you compare Bon and Boreal. I kind of get an image of I know Boreal will be oh, into yeah. the lighthouse family. I think Bon <laughs> won't be more into the lightning seeds or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, which makes me think that this other world he's seeing could it be our world, right? With the chemical waste, mm. yeah, probably broken buildings. I mean- this is Burnt total Pullman shit, right? <laughs> this is the most Pullman stuff in the book right here because we know mm-hmm. how he is on the environment. He's very uh, very cross with what has happened to the Earth we yep. live on. Yep. 
That's his um, That's his bag. <laughs> the people out on the terrace stir, and someone is running towards another in a wheelchair. They try to get themselves out of the tree quickly, Asta and Malcolm, and the people on the terrace are starting to look towards them. Suddenly, they're carrying Bone V in a wheeled chair down the steps of the terrace. This is horror movie shit. <laughs> Once they get to the ground, Malcolm and Asta start to lay the resin-soaked canvas. They put tacks in it, and Alice hurries over with Lyra. He directs her to open the toolbox and hands. He directs her to open the toolbox and hand him a tack due to his sticky hands. And they get it done. They turn the boat over. Alice keeps a watch out. Malcolm suddenly finds himself gazing at her body in a very sexy way and is like, not now, puberty. And he goes back to sliding the boat in the water. <sighs> yes, sliding the boat into the water. I get it. There's not a lot of ways to slide the boat in the water. But when it's paired in the same moment, and he's all like, Alice's slim body and her nice hips and her breasts. Wow. Slide the boat in the water. All right. All right, Pullman. Put it away. Ugh. I don't want to know why Malcolm's getting these boners about Alice right now. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, as we've been saying, this is it. This is Malcolm's sexual awakening. I guess he's playing on the trope of, like, you know, he sees her, like, with her makeover once. Yep. And then he's like, yo, that's it. That's it for me. Um, and and I don't know. I guess it, it is this moment, right? Because we've never really seen him discuss girls before or really notice them in that way. Yeah, but I suppose he only played with the boys, maybe. Yeah. yeah, that's the thing. He only, like, played with the boys, had no, like, friends who were girls. Mm. So, this is... Yeah, this is his... It's uh, just Alice and his awakening. mom. And I mean, yeah. it, it happens, you know? I guess this, this is the age that that starts happening. You start being like, Some, I'm noticing different things. Mm-hmm. My body is changing. Yeah, he's not at that point yet, but he will be soon enough. I mean, probably. I don't know. All of a sudden, in the last year, he started getting this fucking light coming out of his eyeballs. So, That's yeah. true. That is That's his puberty. body changing. I mean, it's not for me, but for some people, maybe it is. <laughs> well, they pack up, right? Alice loads their belongings in the canoe. Pan buzzes as a bee around Lyra, and the crowd is growing larger. She's like, what's the plan, Malcolm? They can't go up the waterfall, so they're going to have to check the other side of the water to get out. They make moves to go, and as they look up, the crowd of people is moving toward them with the distant, creepy ha, 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 uh. echoing beyond them. Yes, very creepy. They pass through trees, leaving the garden behind, and the lanterns fade from view. There's enough light for Malcolm to see what's ahead, though. A great pair of iron-bound doors, heavy with age, draped in moss and weeds, emerging from the stream like the gates of a lock completely shutting off their escape. There was no way out by water. I kind of wonder, as we start to leave this world, are the Iron Doors here a gateway between the fairy realm and Malcolm's usual world, right? Because the fairies often dislike iron. So is it like holding them in or or meant to keep them out of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What is it you guys in Iron Doors? Right, iron and oak? <laughs> mm, yeah, I don't know, what is it? Oh, that is good. And of course, we know, like, as we get there, which will be in the next chapter, that's Father Tam down there. Yep. Uh, gonna let them through and save them because they have the Princess of Albion with them. So it, it does seem that they are leaving that realm, going back to the real world. It does. I, I kind of am, um, I'm kind of thinking as well of the Edmund Spencer poem we talked about earlier, The Fairy Queen. 
And um, when I read it, there was one particular pa- passage that I thought was particularly appropriate for these chapters. Um, and it reads, Now strike your sails, ye jolly mariners, for we be come unto a quiet road, and light this weary vessel of her load. Here she a while may make her safe abode, till she repaired, have her tackle spent, and want hmm. supplied, and then again abroad on the long voyage whereto she is bent. Well may she spend speed and barely finish her intent. I think that's probably the two chapters kind of in, in a passage, isn't it? Oh, that is. It really is. I love the, uh, the, the repairing of the tackles. <laughs> yeah, the wording's lovely. I think that's like my favorite part about each of these end of the chapters, because every chapter seems to end with them getting out of trouble or getting out of the situation, and they go mm. right back into La Belle Sauvage, and back on the water they go. And, to the next uh, situation. Yeah, I, I think it's just such a great transition, and I love that it always anchors, no pun intended, back to La Belle Sauvage. It's a fantastic connection between all these different things that we've been talking about. Truly very interesting. That does wrap up our reading of Resin. However, Warren, I know that you are aware that we have so much to talk about with the Secret Commonwealth, so we're Mm going to wrap up talking in our discussion about the Secret Commonwealth, where we spoil everything and anything about the Secret Commonwealth that reminds us of this chapter that we want to chat about. So if you have not listened to the Secret Commonwealth, thanks for listening. Please come back and listen with us next month when we hopefully finish the book, if not get very close to finishing the book, possibly with a special guest star. So keep an ear out for another guest, another guest on the canon, maybe next month for La Belle Sauvage's end. And with that, let's bust on into our discussion. Eliana, I think you get to listen in on this one. I don't see anything wrong. So here we go. There's a lot that I wanted to talk about with Olivier throughout the entire episode. Everything, uh, every point Warren you kept bringing up with Bonvia, I was like, yeah, and Olivier. I think Olivier is going to be the big key to a lot of those plots, right? Uh, yeah. Like the reveal of what his dad, what vengeance he's getting for his dad to Lyra. I think he's probably going to end up giving us the answers we seek there. I'm curious about Olivier. Does, does Gerard know of his existence or... Like, you know, was he is he alive at the time of Le Belle Sauvage? Yeah, in this kind of, of implies that on? he is like a parallel child, right? Similar to Lyra. Um, I How know, old is you know. He? Well, he seems to be about her age. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm guessing that that's part of the vengeance, right? Like Lyra, Lyra's existence made him an orphan. Hmm. It's kind of how it feels. Yeah, I, I, I kind of get, I can dig that, I kind of get the sense that um, maybe he's going to play, Pullman's going to play on the notion of um, of Olivier yeah. having a, a kind of a misunderstanding or misconception. Of and only, only at of, And only at the very end is he going to mm-hmm. realise that everything that he's been chasing is lies and wrong. It's such a well-worn trope. But I think it's something Pullman yeah. particularly could do very well. Well, it's kind of an inverse, right? Yeah, Yeah, it is. It's the opposite of Marisa and Asriel who end up finally at the end overcoming their idiocy and they jump for Lyra. And the opposite of realizing, yeah. Yeah, and actually Lyra still doesn't know that. Exactly. Lyra doesn't know. know. So neither of them know the true manner of their parents' death. And they're just left with their their illusions and the stories that other people tell them. Yeah. It's very interesting, yeah. I am very interested for his role. Mm, absolutely. 
I think he'll like come to the good side is kind of what I think. I think he's going to be, uh, we, we've obviously related it to the great romantic relationship in media, Raylo, you know, uh, it's the same thing as yeah. Raylo as they seek each other through the alethiometer and touch mm. their hands to it. But uh, I do think that he's going to be not redeemed. It's not like he's really a bad kid. He just like got caught up with the magisterium. I mean, he's born mm. into it. He's born into this role of vengeance in the magisterium for his father, and they're able to manipulate him because he's so easily emotional through that. And I kind of wonder if his plot is going to be joining Lyra and Malcolm in the secret commonwealth to try to fix everything once he learns what his dad was doing. I think as well there's kind of an element of tempestuousness Mm. to Olivia. If you kind of look at his story, I mean, Delamere is kind of, is controlling him, but he has... No compunction whatsoever about I'm off to find Pan and I will I'll take the elitiometer and I'll use the new method and even I'll though he's told not to yeah you know he's I I don't care what you tell me I'm going to do what I want anyway which is, it is quite very, very Kylo Ren <laughs> yeah yeah it is it's it's kind of emo and stuff but it's very typical of a, a I suppose a confused and yeah. a, a boy of his age dealing with that kind of confusion and maybe dealing with illusions that might not necessarily be true with regards to his his father and hmm. having so many questions that aren't answered or can't be answered and when he learns that the magisterium was lying to him too you know like you know they're laying it on thick because he's easily oh, yeah. manipulated uh i mean he's a puppet he's being used as a magisterium puppet so that that's a big part too that's going to be a big turning point i think for olivier i think he's going to want to like fuck off from the magisterium very hard once he realizes the truth of the scenario going on and also what's at stake, right? Because Lyra's journey and the roses and all these different things that crop up uh, through the story, um, <laughs> they they seem to like, you know, they're, they're the hints at the beginning of the story before you get into the truly political stuff that's going on in the all-out war that's really happening. Absolutely. And I, I, I can't help but think as well that, that Malcolm's going to play a big part in that transition for Olivier. He, I think he already is. The, the, the seeds are sown let's the put it that way the seeds are sown, sown. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I'm curious to see how, how Pullman does pull this together um, wow. in the end because obviously yeah. but I mean, I mean obviously I, I buy into the notion you have that we might see someone from the original trilogy reappear towards the end um, but mm-hmm. how exactly he's going to do it and um, how not just how he's going to do it, but how it's going to be written, and um, mm-hmm. just given the connection that we all have for the original trilogy, for for that to happen. Um, well, that's an interesting thought too of the how, right? And some of these elements mm-hmm. and these magical elements that have been brought into the story. So, in this chapter earlier, when we get to the second beautiful, rich mansiony house, let's yeah. go back to those fountains for a second. Speaking of these secret Commonwealth elements, um. Past a fountain with blue water, and then something with water that sparkled, <laughs> and a third that sprayed up not water, but something like cologne. Um, roses? Is that rose yeah. oil? Was that Bells third fountain spraying rose perfume? That sounds expensive. I know. Well, listen, think about her girlfriend at school with her family's rose company. I mean, this is what they provided Eliana. The fairies called them and they were like, we're going to need seven more gallons stat today. That is not sustainable. (laughs) Not sustainable at all. I really think that 
that cologne, especially because the beds of flowers around. I'm telling you, it was rose oil cologne. It was rose cologne. There's no way. It's gotta be. I mean, it's mm. like the fountain of youth also, it seems, right? Mm. Uh, it, it's got that kind of fountain of youth, fountain of immortality kind of thing going on, Tuck Everlasting style, this weird place where the people are weird and nobody hears them or sees them and they just move around gracefully doing whatever. A frozen world. Kind of thought flowing in my mind as well, but it might be kind of that we covered the two chapters that we've covered as well. But there's a story as well, might be worth looking up afterwards, of um, a Celtic story of the children of Lear. Mm. And that kind of strikes me as a potential bittersweet type ending that Pullman could lean into, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. following on the kind of themes that you're talking about and the kind of stuff that we've been talking about earlier too. Um, and literally, it just strikes me. It's not something that I've pondered as we prepared for this. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't think about that ever in terms of me the either. lore. And it I, I do think it would be mm. very bittersweet. And I do think that I think there's got to be some sort of death. Uh, I know that's dark, but like we're in this mature series now. We're, we're seeing death in this book. We're seeing uh, assault mm-hmm. and death in this book like crazy. And in the next book, obviously, it gets very dark. And yep. I just feel like we might see one of our beloveds, Malcolm, possibly please. bite the police. <laughs> I'm telling you, I think he's got to die. There's no way to do this story right if he doesn't. Just kill him. But <laughs> so this is, mean, you, you know this is going to upset Pete, yeah? You know Pete's going to be upset with this because he, he loves Malcolm. But well, he's going to have to get he, over he's gotta it. Go. You know? He's got to go. He's got to go. He's, he's had his time. You know, he had his story. And... He's really uh, busting it on mine. But no, I do think he's significant <laughs> in all of this. And I think his spangled ring, and I think Rose Oil and Malcolm's spangled eye ring, I think that has to come together. Uh, I think I there's no other you. way. Malcolm can't read the alethiometer. He doesn't even really try, right? He doesn't want to. Uh, it's not for him. He doesn't think it's for him in that aspect. He tries to give it away. He tries to get rid of it. And then it goes to Lyra because it is for Lyra, as we learn, uh, the destiny of that alethiometer was meant for Lyra. She knows how to read it as soon as she can. But that spangled ring has to lead to something. And especially with what we discussed today of the fog revealing another world beyond and possibly another world beyond the other area and Mm -hmm. possibly that whole waiting room idea in the middle of a bunch of worlds, a nexus between them, uh, neither living nor dead, right? Between life and death, between dreams. Yeah. (sighs) Malcolm's got to do something. I mean, he does. I, I, I mean, I waited it's, the whole it's book, be glorious, book for but it. It's got to be an end, I think. Yeah, I, I think he's got to do something with his eyeball thing. Maybe he's going to be able to see other worlds with it. Maybe his spangled ring is what is letting him see other worlds. His yeah, second that's sight, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. for the men's. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I'm curious as well what we're talking about. Do we think Delamere knows Bonville's father's secrets? Do you think he was involved with Mrs. Coulter? Hmm. Um, he was Delamere's sister in his experimental work, but do we think Pullman would explore more on that link or reveal anything to us? I find that family so interesting. Mm-hmm. Right? So we know they share the mother. We know yeah. that the mom that we meet, that's the mom. But we also know that Marisa's maiden name from other novellas is Van Z. Marisa Van Z. Pullman himself has confirmed that. So... That okay. to me makes me think that they're half siblings, right? Or step siblings. Uh, she had a different father than Delamere. So 
I'm wondering if there's something there to be looked at with some of those aspects of changelings and duplicates. We know that the show certainly had some Ooh. implications, right? They implied maybe she's yeah. a witch. Uh, or that they basically, at least as an analog, as an allegory, they joined together the witch's plot and talking about severing with Marisa, and they wanted us to kind of think about that. As we discussed during our Serpentine episode, the witch's journey to sever from their demons that they must take, or they live a half-life, certainly seems significant to the journey that Lyra is taking to find herself again in the secret commonwealth. So it makes me wonder what the princess uh, and what Delamere, in growing up in that environment, obviously it was toxic, obviously. Uh, obviously we see their relationship was not great, uh, and that she was pretty pretty fucked up and toxic towards Marisa. So mm-hmm. did she make Marisa take that journey, maybe? Uh, Delamere has to know something about the experimental work, but obviously he also happens to not have a lot of knowledge because he wouldn't need Olivier Bonvie if he did. That's true, and and also his relationship with his mother seems very strained and very strange. Um, yeah. And to the extent where you wonder why he'd have one. If that's how he feels. That's true. <laughs> oi, oi, I would have been like, fuck you <laughs> at this point. The sense I got with regards to um, Mrs. Coulter and her link to being potentially a witch, the sense I very much got reading them passages in Secret Commonwealth was that possibly their mother was a witch. Mm-hmm. And I kind that's of felt that that was a possibility. Um, and that was the link. Yeah, because the, of... the witch oil in their blood. There is witch mm-hmm. oil in that blood, for sure. Absolutely. <sighs> and if that's the case, then it's in Delamere's blood as well. How does yeah. that work? If it's maternal, it has to be, yeah. Mm. Unless maybe their dad was a witch. Or, like, well, uh, uh, of there, the witches. You know what I there's mean? There's all kinds of things he could play with, though. I mean, he could play with the concept of Delamere and not being... Delamere and Marissa maybe sharing a father. Yeah. And sharing a mother, and maybe, maybe in that sense, there might be something in that, and there might be something to explore in that in terms of this myste- even, mysterious father. I, I only say that because of the interesting things that have come up with both Serpentine, His Dark Materials Series mm-hmm. 2, with Lancelius. Uh, yeah. There's a lot from Lancelius that I feel like he's laying on pretty thickly as far as like Lancelius grew up in the lakes. And he grew up kind of as, you know, a witch's child and grew up basically as a witch and the different things going on and that kind of scope he's providing us. And I'm just very curious at how that's going to develop because Pullman released Serpentine last year and he's working on the Book of Dust 3. So that means that these thoughts have to be something he's playing with that he wants to work with in that book. And I think as well, unlike the other series... That you're covering, I think Pullman has always had, I think he's always had the nuts and bolts to hand. He always, he kind of knows what he's doing and where he's going. There's no gardening here. Mm-hmm. Um, a little precise. bit, there's a little bit where he kind of lets things kind of go, but he's much more precise and his story is much more formed before he even sits down to write it. Yeah. Um. So it's, it's, it's kind of, as a reader, it makes it easier to speculate where he might be going because of that. Mm-hmm. Where, it's where, like George is very much choose your own adventure. You know, you could do this, this could happen, this could happen, that could happen, and we speculate all the things that could happen, and then he laughs and says, "Well, actually, this happened." And Pullman yeah. is much more, um, less elaborate. Let's put it like that. <laughs> very precise. I feel yes, like. measured, very, 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 measured, precise. very precise. 
and that has very much has its strengths and it's very much evident in um, certainly in the original trilogy um, and it is it is evident in this series though uh, even though there are elements of it that are uncomfortable that doesn't mean that it's not a good story or that he's not telling it well yeah um I'm, I'm wondering as well I know I kind of mentioned it earlier about um Gerard and my suspicions that he might have attacked or raped Marissa that he might have might think Lyra is his child um, or that somehow he, he might have understood the significance of Lyra, that, that something's drawing him to wanting this child and where that's coming from. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think there's an aspect of, as Chloe said in previous episodes, maybe it's revenge, maybe also understanding her significance now now that I've got that tinfoil wheel <laughs> spinning up. Maybe he knew. <laughs> I mean, he might have, right? Because he has an alethiometer in his hands too. Mm-hmm. And there's that aspect of how he speaks to Malcolm, very condescending and like, oh, Malcolm, you don't know anything. And he lies he to doesn't. him. Yeah. He, well, he doesn't. But he <laughs> lies to Malcolm about the Russicott field, right? And he's like, you mm-hmm. don't know about it. But I think that knowing what we know that he lied about that to Malcolm, he lied purposefully. And Malcolm called him out on the carpet about it and said something very relevant to the Russicott particles. And I think that might have scared him a little or shaken him a little, right? That's why he lied immediately. Like, no, that's wrong. And I'm not going to tell. Why would I tell a kid anyways? Uh, But that's a little scary. And obviously, we know the Rusikov particles and the Rusikov field are literally fundamentally like going to be a part of whatever happens as the whole entire ultimate ending of the series. It's going to have some sort of answer about dust that Pullman wants to pull off, I think. And it's an advanced, mature theorizing that no 11 year old boy should be no 11 year old stocky pudgy ginger boy should be able to just figure out like that right you don't just google russikov particles yeah he's earth-minded you don't just google that shit and that took him Mm. off guard and i think that because the russikov field is like something so fundamental to the answer of whatever's going to happen at the end or dust right it's the answer of why dust does what it does uh i think that feels so significant in this and significant for whatever the hell Bonvi's problem is, right? Like, the research has to have been set up with Marisa and with other people. The government owning his research, for example, is a big thing. It reads like someone gone rogue, or an agent gone rogue, for sure. Because he's Hannah Ralph, but evil. Hmm. Yeah, 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 I get you. He's like her counterpart. Absolutely. I, I think there's another element with it as well that's kind of a common theme in stories like this of um, the father not achieving the go- quite achieving the goals and the son coming along and following in the footsteps and potentially yeah. outdoing him like Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader or, or just want to leak straight to mind. And I wonder, is is that something he's going to explore through Olivier? Mm-hmm. And possibly in a Star Wars kind of thing, you know, have a kind of moment at the end where he turns to the good side or the light side you know Uh sees the wrong of his ways yeah and i do hope that he's facing that idea of like to go back to star wars and kind of the themes that they tried to execute in the last movie they made the last jedi it's too bad they never made another movie nope they they never made another movie after the last jedi the last jedi (laughs) was a good one for me anyway i loved it but i I like i really like the last jedi yeah last jedi is a great movie and if you want to fight me about it do it i dare come true me first dare you i want to see it happen (laughs) the thing is is that obviously corporate executive suits ruin everything we know this from the golden compass you guys we don't have to go into it but (laughs) we have a whole hour and a half on that one but like 
The Last Jedi thematically was that institutions are buried with so much prejudice. They are embedded with it. It is in its veins. You can't take that out of the institution. And it's time for the Jedi to die because the Jedi are not necessarily good. We see that the Jedi have an issue with balancing power and balancing the light and the dark force. And we see where sometimes the Jedi and the Sith are the same people. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and I do hope that's something that he's hoping to come to the middle of because it does seem very much like Olivier is the evil Sith Lord kid, brat kid, like Kylo Ren style that has the evil yep. Delamere over him, puppeting him. Uh, and on the other side, you have the C- you have against the CCD Oakley Street, but it's also obvious from what we've seen with the Lord Chancellor Nugent, as we mentioned earlier, that this isn't the right way either always. They don't always have the right ways and they choose shortcuts that harm people. Um, and then you have in between it, the people, the secret commonwealth of the people laying in between it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I don't know as much about what's going on with Olivier's story, but the deafness with which he did handle Marisa's story in the original trilogy, right? Okay. And and the way that he threaded that ambiguity of her wavering between good and evil. I mean, yes. in some ways, she's kind of the ultimate evil. She she does the worst things. I would say she's killing children systematically, and constantly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. kidnapping, then then experimenting often. upon them, letting them die. Yeah, very often, just for personal career ambition. Uh, and and the way that he's able to sort of offer her that humanity and a path towards goodness sort of i think that it it bodes well for whatever's going on with potentially olivier's story yeah Uh, that's a really good point of that balance and what he explores with marisa i think that does significantly show that some of these capable of it yeah, and I think Olivier is go- is being given a chance for that in the story. There isn't really, like, to be fair to you, Eliana, there isn't a lot of story. So, like, do not worry on that I one. I saw, like, yeah. one sexy scene, but I haven't gotten to the rest. Of <laughs> that was cute. No, That's there- a lot of speculation, in fairness. Yeah, I mean, just he just holding- is uh, the other side, right? Like, Lyra is the alethiometer reader right now on the good side. He's the alethiometer reader for the bad side. Uh Star cross Malcolm's the middle. Yeah, Malcolm's something. Malcolm in the middle, maybe. Who knows? Oh, I kind of did like <laughs> that show. I did like that show. Oh, I love Malcolm in the Middle. <sighs> that one's fun. Yeah. Oh. It has its moments. I definitely want this last book to come out. <laughs> I think it's I don't, come I don't out. think we'll have a ten year wait. You say that. <laughs> I know. I was very I excited think- this week on a digression to hear Joe Arbor Crombie's finale of his latest series is coming very very soon hmm. which makes me happy lucky that's two trilogies i've read of his will have waited for um, <laughs> <laughs> winds of winter <laughs> but however um do we have any thoughts on how pullman handles the reveal of alice's rape particularly with regards to some of what's in store for lawyer in the secret commonwealth i do think that there's a lot in this chapter that i these last two chapters that I don't like about the way that Pullman writes. I uh, I don't like the way he uses his female characters, as I've alluded to. He does seem to use them as uh, vehicles for plot devices like assault. Yeah. Not events happening that matter to the characters, but, you know, for example, 
later on, it becomes a plot point of Malcolm is a good person for saving Alice. Not Alice underwent something that completely hurt her, but she was able to rebuild herself as a strong woman after. Uh, it doesn't really explore that. So I, how do you feel about how Pullman writes Alice in these last two chapters, Warren? I think, like, Pullman has written some fantastic characters, and Alice is right up there. Um, and one of the absolute sins so far in this trilogy is how little credit he, he really has given her and how he, she, she's never really at the forefront. It's Malcolm that rescues Lyra. It's Mal, Malcolm is always the hero and Alice is mm. the yeah. willing accomplice. Um, and it's a constant role and it, he never challenges it. He never tries to do it differently. Um, even in the secret Commonwealth, um, the reveal of who Mrs. Lonsworth is, um, there's so much more he could have done with that character. There's so much, it's it, it's frustrating. I think that's the word. What what he does with her, um, or more what he doesn't do with her because there's so much potential to kind of um, particularly in in the world we're living in. And don't kid yourself that Pullman isn't reading the papers and isn't aware of kind of the direction the world's going in. But he just doesn't seem to be fully on board with the idea that a girl like Alice can be strong, independent, and can fight for what's right and make a difference. And apparently that's it's just Malcolm that can do that, which is sad. Yeah, something specifically that's really mm -hmm. bothering me in this chapter is that, so Alice is presented to us as a 15-year-old caretaker, right? Uh, she's mm -hmm. 16 in the U.S. story, 15 in the U.K. story, and she is a caretaker. She works. She is an adult young woman who works and takes money home to her mother mm -hmm. to help pay the bills. She works two jobs. We see her making ends meet by working at the Priory and working at the Trout. Uh, she is shown as, especially through Malcolm's eyes, as being a little bit forlorn and stubborn, a little sullen, uh, probably exhausted, right? She's doing physical labor most of her day to pay for her family to yeah. live. Uh, so I'm very frustrated because she is an actual young woman in the workforce. And he infant he basically infantilizes her so much that she asks Malcolm at least five times in these two chapters what they're going to do next. And it really strikes me as... Probably, I don't know, maybe the biggest suspension of disbelief I have in this whole story. Like, I can accept fairy islands, golden pear trees, uh, yeah. salmon on the tray and people seeing through you. I can accept <laughs> that shit. But it just doesn't make sense to me that a 15, 16-year-old young woman who is an adult caretaker in the workforce, two jobs, has to look to an 11-year-old for advice and for direction throughout this story. As somebody who's been a 16-year-old young woman with a job or a 15-year-old woman mm. with a job, I wouldn't be asking an 11-year-old for how to live my fucking life or what to do next. Some scenarios, it warrants it, but it was like five to six times at least in these chapters. Yeah, it was it's too many. It's very prevalent, yeah. So yeah. the audio is picking, picking up the noise of my head, nodding along to every word you're saying, Chloe. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 yeah. it's, um... It it is, it's, it's particularly when you point it out in that way. It's very, how would I say it? It's very, it's it's very remiss at the least of Fulham, and I, I think it betrays a type of 
inbred misogyny. I don't. I genuinely don't think he is actively misogynistic, no, but I think that it's it's very passive. But it's very when it's evident, it's very evident. Mm-hmm. And the irony is, I mean, we're talking about this now. I can very well believe that he just does not see that, and that's very frustrating as a reader. Um, yeah. And I could well understand it. It definitely feels like it is a limitation of him and of yeah. his vision and his scope that he does not see why that would be a problem or understand why that could look problematic. So it's something yeah. interesting to me. It just doesn't vibe with the entire character who doesn't need guidance usually. I guess, I mean, I, I think as you said, right, he's not... it's something where he doesn't realize that implicit like misogyny right he hasn't interrogated that within himself in his writing because he set out to write his dark materials in response to what he felt was the very explicit misogyny of the chronicles of narnia he wanted strong a strong girl character strong women characters right Mm -hmm. and we see in lyra someone who is able to make those decisions and that people listen to in some ways uh as even though she's 11 years old but it's just strange that he has alice do this and i guess part of the issue is that framing as, as you said, like the framing of the story, it's all so built around Malcolm and it's the limitations of that yes. and, and, and the writing because all of it is in service very much to Malcolm's story and his progression and therefore everything else acts within that, including Alice's uh, character and story. Rather than it serving whatever Alice's character is, um, it ends up being inconsistent because it is in service to Malcolm's plot. Yes. Yeah. He's just yep. so caught up in telling Malcolm's story, he neglects everyone else, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. we see he's and, capable and it, of doing it, but... I mean, he's done yeah. it before with a man. Oh. Shit. <laughs> Sorry, I said the quiet just, thing I mean, loud. I mean, he's done it before with Lyra. He's done it before with Lyra, right? He's he's done it... Well, no, with he's Will. Done a good I mean, one. like, yeah. with making Will yeah. matter against Lyra and making us care about yeah. Will's plot, right. making us invest. That's what I'm saying. He did it fine with Will. We know everything about Will. Will's childhood, you know, that he had and now we have such an expanded view from the show, God bless them, but like uh, we knew so much more about Will's childhood, somebody who we don't even meet until the second story Uh, and Alice who has spent every waking moment in Malcolm's eyesight since the Priory, right? Since that moment when all hell broke loose we barely scratched the surface And she's even in the original trilogy as well. Yes Yep. She came first, actually Yeah and I mean, the whole secret commonwealth he just neglects. She goes to jail. Mm. That's the best way to get her I'm off hoping, the page. Mm, mm. You, yeah. you think he's going to leave it? Oh, don't leave it like that, Pullman, please. I, I don't think he will, though. I think he has. We have mm. to get a glorious scene of Alice breaking out or something. There, there better be. If he, I will forgive him. I will forgive you, Phil. If you do that, if you give us some great glorious Alice time, Alice breaking out, Alice busting out and leading a fucking rebellion revolution out of there to go to Lyra the or something. But... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we need to go to Pullman's Twitter and tell him to watch The Great Escape as he's preparing to write the we next just book. Just watch The Great head. Escape. Yeah. Uh, Patron Alice digging that tunnel. That's going to be interesting. I really hope we free Alice. Free Alice Lonsdale, please. Yes. Free her. Free the Lonsdale one. <laughs> well, 
I think that's about it for La Belle Sauvage. I think we covered it all. That was a pretty big, dusty discussion, Warren. Thank you so much again for joining us for these chapters for Chapter 21 and Chapter 22. Uh, please, Warren, let everyone know where they can find you on Twitter or online. You can find, they can find me on Twitter as The Hedge Knight. Um, online, I'd spend a lot of time in, in the Girls Gone Canon discourse, Discord, having discourse. <laughs> um, so any other patrons who want to jump along in there, we have a lot of fun in there. Um, brunches, happy hours, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, that that's that's me. I'm pretty low-key, really. <laughs> hey, well, it was a pleasure to have you on. And honestly, we couldn't have navigated the lore without you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's very much appreciated. We really couldn't have... Well, everyone, uh, thank you so much for joining us for this month's La Belle Sauvage episode. And thank you again to Warren for joining us. Um, if you have any thoughts that you would like to share with us about this episode or about His Dark Materials or La Belle Sauvage, you can find us on social media on Twitter at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N. Shoot us a tweet or whatever, or you can send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes, and if you have not already, make sure to subscribe to us on a podcast platform near you. If you stream us, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon, Audible, iHeartRadio, Acast, Stitcher, you name it, we're on there. Give us a Google, we'll show up. And, of course, as we said up top, we do have a Patreon, and this month's Patreon episode is going to be about the His Dark Materials television show, in which we try to figure out what was in the contents of the bottle episode about Lord Asriel. Yes, we will seek the episode out. We will find it and we will have an outline for you. I can't wait. I wish we could have seen it. Same. You can see well, it in our, in in our, our imaginations. Yeah. Maybe with the new way of reading the Elysiometer. Yep. <laughs> well, as always, I have been another one of your hosts, Chloe. <laughs> And I have been one of your hosts, Eliana. (laughs) Thanks so much for tuning in.